This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by the incredible Dippy Bird. A journey through deep space just isn't complete without a random Dippy Bird on your table. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. And it's another alien week on Pod Cemetery with 1986's Aliens and 2017's Alien Covenant. If you missed our first Aliens episode, that was episode 113 back in December of last year, where we covered the previous movies in both of these series, Alien and Prometheus. (laughs) Before we get to the movies, though, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Horror trivia. Give me what you got. What room number was Danny Torrance told to avoid in The Shining? I guess it depends, doesn't it? Fuck, I never get this right. Is it, it's either 217, 237, or 217? According to this, it's 227, but that doesn't sound right. That isn't right. No, I, okay, so I've looked it up. It is, in fact, 217 in the book and 237 in the movie. 227 is not a thing. Yeah. (laughs) That's pretty bad. This game fucking sucks. It really does. We really, really, really need better horror trivia so if you guys are aware of any sources of just general horror trivia not like specific stuff please let us know because at this point the book that i'm referencing hardly ever has anything because i can search it hardly ever has anything related to movies that we're watching Mm -hmm. and so i end up being forced to grab it from trivia i would be talking about during the movie Maybe we should make our own horror trivia game. Maybe. I mean, if it's, if that kind of crap gets published, mm-hmm. geez. Not that we get everything 100% correct, yes. But you'd think you'd look something like that up. But we're not making money here. You're right. Yeah, that's, that's also right. <laughs> All right, Kelsey. Four actors from this movie appear in various Terminator movies, including in Terminator 1... Michael Bean, Lance Henriksen, and Bill Paxton. Who appears in T2 Judgment Day? I will give you one hint. This character is killed and replicated by the T-1000. And an extra hint, it's not some random side character. It is a main character. Named in both films. I don't know. Jeanette Goldstein, who played Vasquez, yes, there is brown face in this movie, is the stepmom. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. I was thinking it was her, but. Yes, brown face. I'm serious. I thought she was Hispanic. She is not Hispanic at all. They actually used makeup on her. Yes. And contacts. I was like, they look really similar, but. It is one. 100% brown face like it's like there's no denying it lots of movies have done this and in the 80s it wasn't nearly as prevalent but it was still definitely th- a thing entire movies would be based around that topic yeah 
Wow. Uh-huh. Reportedly, she came in to audition for a different role, but they liked her. And the character she was auditioning for, I think, was like the pilot of the lander who uh-huh. doesn't have very many scenes. Uh-huh. And they liked her so much that they had her read for Vasquez. And they ended up hiring her on the strength of her audition. But still. Wow. But still. Wow. <laughs> Vasquez is an awesome character. And Jeanette Goldstein does a great job. Yeah, she does. But come on, Jim. <laughs> Yikes. As a bonus, here's a little bonus thing for the trivia about this cast. Michael Bean and Bill Paxton have been in five movies together. What Can you think of three? fucking any of them? Okay, this included, so there are four left. Well, but also, of course, Terminator. That's two. So there are three left. Two of them, there's no way in hell you're getting. And one, I don't even think you think about either of these people being in this movie, and you hate this genre. Are they in Predator? Tombstone. Oh. I think I've seen that. Bill Paxton is Wyatt Earp's brother, Morgan, and Michael Bean is Johnny Ringo, one of the bad guys. Pretty sure I've seen it. I think he's the guy... For whom Val Kilmer will be their Huckleberry? (laughs) I was going to say, is that the If I remember correctly, it's been so long since I've seen Tombstone, and I've seen that movie a bunch. Don't any of you have the guts to play for blood? I'm your Huckleberry. Then yes, I've seen that a lot. My dad fucking loves that movie. (laughs) I just... Like I said, you don't think about... I, I wouldn't assume that Kelsey, you specifically, would think about either of the two of these men being in that movie. I think... Kurt um, Russell? No... Val Kilmer. I think of Val Kilmer and Kurt Russell, and that's pretty much it yeah. from Tombstone. But when you do remind me that Michael Bean is in it as the villain, I'm like, oh, that's He's right. Got that mustache. I and, can see yeah. that in my head, but I can't see Bill Paxton in it. The other two movies are The Lords of Discipline. Never even heard of it. Which is a movie from the 80s about a black cadet. Who is who goes to a military academy in the sixties and it causes strife, and Navy Seals, which I've only ever seen once. Ooh, Navy Seals! Haven't heard of that either. You've seen Clerks? <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things that when they talk about the weird customers that they get, and the guy just goes, "Ooh, Navy Seals!" They never rent quality flicks. They always pick the most intellectually devoid movie on the racks. Ooh, Navy Seals. <laughs> so that leads us into our first movie, 1986's Aliens, directed by James Cameron, screenplay by James Cameron, with story by James Cameron, David Geiler, and Walter Hill, and of course, based on characters created by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett from the original Alien. Starring Sigourney Weaver, Michael Bean, Carrie Henn, Paul Reiser, Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, and Jeanette Goldstein. In addition to all the other stuff I said about the cast, Hicks, Michael Bean, was actually originally played by James Remar, who we just talked about in What Lies Beneath. He is the neighbor character who didn't kill his wife. Mm-hmm. But he got caught with drugs, and <laughs> he got fired from the production. Really? <laughs> yeah. He's supposed to be Michael Bean's character? Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, thank God he didn't get it. Oh, you don't know how it would have turned out. 
I love Michael Bean. <laughs> you and everyone else. Exactly. What is Aliens about? Ripley is found and she tells her story and no one believes her until or do they? Until <laughs> the planet is attacked because people have live or people are now living there on that planet where she came from before in the first LB426? Yes. And it's like a planetoid. she goes on a military expedition to kill them off. The movie is on all of the HBO streaming services. Uh, you can rent it for 3 to $4 from most services. The cheapest is Microsoft and Redbox. You can buy it for about $15 on most services. Should people watch Aliens? Of course. Of course. This is my favorite of the whole series. It's not my favorite of the whole series, but... It is very, very good, and you should absolutely see it. In case you're wondering, we did watch the special edition. It's not called the director's cut. This was back in the early 90s, I want to say, when the director's cut was made, early to mid-90s, uh, for the Laserdisc release. And they added like 17 more minutes in. This is, number one, James Cameron's preferred version of the movie. It is the official canon version of the movie. So things that happen in the cutscenes are known to have happened in this universe. And it's the version that most people will show, like on TV and stuff like that. They'll show the, the special edition version. How interesting. The original theatrical cut is just like nowhere to be found, which is interesting because when you go on sites to watch it, like, say, HBO, if you just press play, you're only going to get the theatrical version. If you go down to the extras, that's where they have the special edition that we watched. So be careful about that when you're watching the version. Mm -hmm. And as we go through, I can try to tell you which scenes are the ones that were added in. And some of them are very significant, including one that Sigourney Weaver was super pissed that they took out. I'm interested to find out which one. Yes. So I'll try to remember and maybe I'll go back and comment on the ones that I miss. Okay. So you can take our advice or leave it, but when we get back, we will talk about 1986's Aliens. We homed in on an alien ship which destroyed my crew. She'll risk everything to destroy them. They mostly come at night. Go to infrared, people. These people are here to protect you. Multiple signals. They're soldiers. What's happening, April? It won't make any difference. Gorney Weaver, Aliens, the new movie. It R. All right, Kels, let's get the story started. Where does Aliens pick up? Sigourney Weaver is in her little, what do you call that? Escape pod? Cryo tube. Sure. She's been cryogenically, she's in cryo sleep, is yes. what they call it. And she collides with another spaceship. I think that they... They're a salvage ship. They're a salvage ship, and I think they tractored it in or intended it to fly into their bay mm. so they can um, investigate. But no, it was a person. Yep. They're really bummed when they find out that she's alive. Yes. Because that means they can't salvage the ship. Right. She wakes up in a hospital... And she's very happy to see that Jonesy is still alive. Yep. Did you ever find out if that was the same cat? I did not, but it sure as hell looks like it. Mm-hmm. And these movies aren't that far apart. They're like eight years apart. Mm-hmm. So theoretically, it could be the same cat. 
in walks man about you lost in your eyes (laughs) it is so weird in retrospect that paul reiser is in this movie because paul reiser is like sitcom comedian paul reiser (laughs) serious action horror movie aliens it's a little bizarre. But this is before he was yes, in. It absolutely stuff. is. Yeah, right? Cuz well yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was the what? The early 90s when Mad About You started? Early early 90s. Yeah. Yeah. But so he walks in and he is telling her that she's been in cryogenic sleep for 57 years. Yep. And she was just lucky to have even been found. They were not they did not know she was out there at all. Yeah, so if you're wondering about the timeline really quick, based on the dates given later on in this movie, Alien takes place in 2122, then 57 years later in 2179 is when this movie takes place. And suddenly she doesn't feel so good and out pops a chestburster. It's She's like, kill me. Yes, it's just a dream. Yes. She wakes up to somebody on the, her monitor, and it's like her nurse or whatever, and her nurse is like, do you need anything to help you sleep? And she's just like, no, no, I've slept enough, you know? 57 years enough. Exactly. But what's funny is, like, it's got, like, tracking problems on the TV screen when she talks oh, yeah. to the person. It's just so funny what they thought technology would be like. I love that shit, man. I love it so damned much. They didn't think it would be totally different then. The whole, like, retro future aesthetic. (sighs) Like, they didn't have, like, video conferencing technology in 1986. Mm -hmm. You know, like, phones didn't work that way. But now we have them in our pocket. And we're not even close to when this movie is supposed to take place. (laughs) So... Uh, but I love that. I just, ugh. It's one of the things I love about the technology on the Nostromo in the <laughs> first movie. I love it about Blade Runner. Basically everything Ridley Scott's ever done. <laughs> <laughs> but so, in walks, mad about you. Again. And he, this time, they know each other because this is real life, not a dream. And she asks him about her daughter, which he tries to ignore the question, but she doesn't let him. And he tells her that she died two years ago. Yes, her daughter died at 66. It was her 11th birthday that Ripley was supposed to be home for. And that picture is actually a picture of Sigourney Weaver's real mom. Oh, really? Yeah, uh uh-huh. It's funny. So they can get a 66-year-old version of somebody related to Sigourney Weaver. Uh, This is the scene that Sigourney Weaver was really pissed about being deleted from the theatrical version. Because she thought, like, it kind of frames everything about Ripley for the rest of this movie. Mm -hmm. And they took it out. I mean, yes, it does help. But it's unnecessary. Uh, No, the fact that she... Okay, first of all, we know she has a kid in the first movie. Then we just don't talk about the fact that she's been in cryosleep for 57 years in the next movie. The next movie, whose entire theme, the the biggest theme of the movie, revolves around motherhood? Come on. (laughs) Come on. Anyway, that's the first deleted scene. 
But he also tells her that her daughter had no children, so she has no family yeah. at this point. So she is sent in, and I'm not quite sure, do you know who these people are? I assume they work for the company that she worked for. Yeah, you would think so, but they have the ability to take her commercial pilot's license, mm -hmm. which, so I don't know if that's, you know, like what exact authority they have, how close they are to Wayland yutani or any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But obviously they have authority over her. There's a few clips and lines in here that got taken out in the theatrical version. But basically, of course, the company... I keep saying the company because did she initially work for Waylon yutani Yes. She did. So it was a very, very minor thing in the first one that they put a logo on something in the first movie. And I think it might have even been taken out of that one. Uh, so it's never actually identified as Waylon yutani until this movie, where they explicitly say that that's the case. And I think in the first one, the logo or the name, like, is spelled differently, too. Like, it's Waylin and not Waylind. Mm -hmm. Something like that. They are more upset about the fact that she destroyed their ship than the fact that her entire crew died. And they, because they have no evidence of these aliens, they have to assume that she went crazy. So ridiculous. <laughs> so ridiculous. She even talks about they were they landed there on company orders, meaning there should be a record of that order somewhere, and they don't respond to that. They immediately change the subject to the fact that they found no evidence of the alien on the ship. Mm-hmm. The lifeboat's flight recorder corroborates some elements of your account, and that for reasons unknown, the Nostromo set down on LV-426, an unsurveyed planet at that time, that it resumed its course and was subsequently set for self-destruct by you for reasons unknown. Not for reasons unknown. I told you. We sat down there on company orders to get this thing, which destroyed my crew and your expensive ship. The analysis team, which went over the lifeboat centimeter by centimeter, found no physical evidence of the creature you described. Good. That's because I blew it out of the goddamn airlock. The evil Wayland Corporation. Uh -huh. <laughs> she makes sure to tell them that it was not from there. Yeah. They're like, there's no life on that planet. We know. It's like, well, it's not from there. I told you it was a crashed ship. <laughs> <laughs> and there are thousands of eggs on there. Uh-huh. And you've got to go back and you've got to destroy it. But they don't listen to her and they just say, no, you're crazy and we're going to take away your flight abilities. Yeah, your, your commercial pilot's license. So she gets some other shitty job working for the company. Well, but before that, like, as they're leaving, she asks the guy, she's like, why don't you just go there and take a look at it? Uh-huh. And he's like, I don't have to. People have been living there for 20 years, terraforming the, the planet. And I initially was like, eh. And Chris was like, well, it is an entire planet. So. Right, that they have to terraform, and it takes time for them to get out and explore, and it's rocky terrain, and the lighting isn't all that great, and, you know... It's... Right, but as we'll see in Alien Covenant, mm -hmm. which was supposed to happen before this movie... Yes. They talk about how in-depth they've already looked at the planet, and how they know, like, where they want to have these geographical features. Yes. 
So it's a very good point. And I would say a tick mark on the Alien Covenant list of bad things about that movie. Oh, really? Yes. You think that's a problem for Alien Covenant and not I think a problem un- for this movie? I think it absolutely undermines this movie, yeah. Well, it does undermine it. Yeah, and but it came afterwards. Think, right. But don't you think that in reality they would have done that? No. I mean, imagine Earth, right? Yeah, Granted, we did not have the navigation capabilities that we have right now. Uh-huh. But think of how long it's taken us to navigate and chart all of Earth. And a lot of places still aren't even charted. We don't know the topography. There are islands that we cannot even get to, even if we wanted to. That nobody's able to land on and hasn't been on in generations because of, like, Natives that live there that are hostile to invaders and things like that. On this planet, there are things we do not know about areas of this planet with the technology we have today. Now, granted, they have much better technology, but it's also an unterraformed planet with hibernating eggs inside a ship that's crash landed into the crust somewhere on the surface. And we know that they haven't been there because we'll see a scene later that they're going to investigate a place where they had never been before and that they get sent on assignments like this regularly. No, absolutely. So they are in the process of of, of scanning this. But again, it's a non-terraformed planet, meaning they can't just get up and walk around and everything. It has harsh atmospheres, has all sorts of things going on. And how do we know what it looks like on Mars? How do you and I, in the year 2020, know what that looks like? Because we have a little probe Mm -hmm. that wanders around. Can you imagine that in this future, where we have these other capabilities, Uh that they would have those sorts of things that could Do you think that that probe has been all over Mars and has scanned every square inch of it? No, but we don't live in their future. Fair. But did you see the video conferencing that they had? In this film, in Aliens, they make it all make sense. It all works within what they show us. And in Alien Covenant, which is a prequel, they're like, uh, we can totally, we know every inch of the planet already. That's an inconsistency between movies that you have to blame on the thing that comes later. I think Alien Covenant is way Closer to what we would be able to do than what this film says we can do. Sure. What you're saying is that movies that are made later are better at predicting the future than movies that were made earlier. And I don't think that's some great revelation. I don't think that makes older movies worse. I think it is the responsibility of movies that come later that are supposed to be prequels to other films to conform to what happens in the previous films. It's their job. And if they fuck that up, that's on them. I just don't understand why. Why didn't they just make it? Oh, we just we've we've been living there for five years. Why? Why make it so long? That it seems unbelievable that they would have. Found them by Because time's supposed to have passed. They want to make it seem like a lot of shit's happened in the time that she's been gone. I personally think it's a problem. I understand. And he tells her that there are 60 to 70 families living there, to which she's she sighs and she's just like families. Like she can't believe that there are children living there. 
This next scene, or the three scenes that follow, were all cut from the theatrical release. Yes. We then see Hadley's Hope, which is the outpost on LV-426. And there are trucks driving around. There's a big compound there. And there are two administrators, we assume, talking about they got a call from one of the prospectors, effectively, is what the people here are doing, right? They're out there. They're looking for things. They're finding minerals, stuff like that. The same sort of shit that the Nostromo was shipping from other places, right? While all this terraforming is going on. They've been terraforming for... 20 years, so it's now moderately safe to be on the planet. You can breathe the air. They are are clarifying whether this person who's been sent on this mission gets to claim a right to whatever they find. Since they were sent on the mission by the organization, Wayland yutani does that mean that he's going to go do this work and then not have anything to show for it at the end of it? Or is he actually going to get it? And they talk about how... No, they have no idea what this mission is about, but as far as that admin's concerned, whatever he finds belongs to him. Tell him as far as I'm concerned, if he finds something, it is his. That scene ends with a bunch of kids playing around on the deck that they that these admins are on, which is a place they absolutely should not be. But it seems like it's something that happens all the time. So they gotta be shooed away. You know you're not supposed to be here. Then we cut to a family. Uh, mother, father, son, daughter... It doesn't make a lot of sense to me that they would bring their daughter on this or their son uh, on this trip with them t- to do work. It just doesn't make a ton of sense. Especially since in the prior scene we saw kids playing around. Obviously, kids go off and do their own thing. Why wouldn't you just leave your kids with them? Exactly. And although, <laughs> think about it. <laughs> I think about all the times I would rather be home playing video games And my dad took me to Home Depot, which he knew I hated, specifically called it my favorite place because he knew I hated it. But in this scene, of course, they're going to come across the eggs and the father and the mother are going to come running out and the father will have a face hugger on him. So I would assume that they wanted her there so that they could have her seeing the impact of the aliens at an early time in the situation so that she would be more prepared for it, which is why, or one of the reasons why she survives as long as she does. But just because that's a good way to tell that whole thing and explain it to you very quickly, to the audience very quickly, that doesn't mean it makes sense that she would bring her. Mm -hmm. They would bring their children. Yeah. Meanwhile, back where Ripley is... By the way, they're totally smoking indoors in space. Fucking everybody smokes. <laughs> Everywhere in this movie. Yes. But it's just, it's like, they all thought that smoking would still be totally fine indoors. Mm-hmm. It's just funny. How do you feel about the future? A world where smokers and non-smokers live together in perfect harmony. So cigarettes in space. It's the final frontier, Nick. Yeah, but wouldn't they blow up in an all-oxygen environment? Probably. But... It's an easy fix. One line of dialogue. Thank God we invented the, you know, whatever device. So who visits her? I'm mad about you, lost in your <laughs> She's going to do this every time he comes into a room. <laughs> Burke, Paul Reiser. And? Gorman, Lieutenant Gorman, who's a lieutenant in the Space Marines. Yeah. <laughs> this is kind of, I mean, yes, there is Starship Troopers, right? There's a bunch of sci-fi novelizations, but this really 
solidified in the cultural zeitgeist the visual concept of space marines. <laughs> and for a long time, when people thought space marines, and even still to this day, they think the marines and aliens. Interesting. But so Burke wants her to go on with them on a mission to... LV-426. Because... The outpost has not reported in in quite a long time. Yes. <laughs> it's been a couple of days or weeks or something, and they haven't heard from them. And she's just like, uh, wait a minute. You throw me to the wolves, and then you ask me to go with you on a rescue mission? I don't fucking think so. And they're like, look, you're not even going to be going in. Your safety's totally guaranteed. We don't actually think anything's gone wrong. We just want you there in case we need an advisor. The Marines will protect you. And she's just like, I don't even understand. Why are you even interested in this? Why are you looking into this? And he goes, well, the company is invested in it. It always comes back to the company. Yep. This scene is a little bit longer in the special edition. He's saying, I know that there's nothing wrong. Um, I want you to come with us. And guess what? If you do come. I'll get you your pilot's license back. Yes. But she turns it down categorically. She's just like, fuck you. Mm -hmm. And the horse you rode in on. However, that night she has another nightmare about a chest burster. She contacts. Oh. I'm mad about you. <laughs> I wish I could think some of the other lyrics. <laughs> And she asks him to make sure, is the plan to wipe them out, or is the plan to bring some back? Which, it's so stupid. Of course he's going to say we're going to wipe them out. Like, he's going to tell her that we're going to take some Right, home. he knows that her objection in the original case, and the reason everything went to shit, is because the company wanted to bring them back. So she has reason to believe they'll still want to bring them back. Yeah. She knows that they've done this before, and why that's gone haywire, and... He knows that she would be upset if he said that. So why wouldn't he lie? Yeah, it's stupid. It's like asking somebody, you're not lying to me, are you? Like, yeah, somebody telling the truth would say no, but so would somebody who's lying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She tells Jonesy that he will be staying there, which was very sad. And we don't see Jonesy for the rest of the movie. No. Next scene, they are all in cryogenic sleep on their way to... LV-426, or Hadley's Hope. Interestingly, in the special edition, we get the pan around the completely lifeless Sulaco, which is the name of the spaceship that they're on, which is kind of reminiscent of the same shots in the first movie. They took that out in the theatrical version, which seems really weird. Anyway, the Sulaco is the name of a city in... Nostromo, A Tale of the Seaboard, which is a Joseph Conrad story that we mentioned in the last episode, 113, where we talk about the first movie. So they all wake up and one of them will look at Michael Bean and be like, hey, Hicks, you look like how I feel. It's just like, well, then you must feel great. Yeah, no, he looks totally fine. Everyone else looks like shit. He <laughs> looks great. Of course, the sergeant wakes up and immediately puts a cigar in his mouth and is immediately barking orders. It's a very typical sergeant in films. Interesting you say that. This is Al Matthews, who plays Sergeant Apone, who is actually the only person on the cast who was a Marine. Oh, there you go. According to himself, 
Uh, he said, I spent six years in the United States Marine Corps. This is on, on his website. He died like two years ago, but on his website, you can find information. I hold 13 combat awards and decorations, including two Purple Hearts. I was the first black Marine in the 1st Marine Division in Vietnam to be meritoriously promoted to the rank of sergeant. Awesome. So, yes, he was he was actually a sergeant. And immediately Vasquez will start doing uh, pull-ups and Bill Paxton goes up to her and he's just like, Hey Vasquez, have you ever been mistaken for a man? No. Have you? One of the famous lines from this film. And you find out pretty quickly that they have no idea why they're here. They have not been briefed on the situation. Sounds like Prometheus. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Or I guess Prometheus sounds like this. <laughs> they all sit down for their meal, and Bishop, who is played by Lance Henriksen, he is the synthetic on board, or as he likes to be called, artificial human? Yes, I believe so. It might be artificial person. I prefer the term artificial person myself. He does the whole five-finger fillet thing. Yes. Which you had to do a lot of in Red Dead Redemption 2. <laughs> Because he knows. <laughs> but yeah, so he does that really fast to let you know that he is a robot. Which, of course, upsets Sigourney Weaver, because the last robot she had any encounters with didn't go very well. Yes. And she's like, you didn't tell me there was a synthetic on this ship. And he's like, why does that matter? And Burke's like, oh, shit, I didn't even think about that. And then Burke and Bishop have a conversation about, like, what happened? Oh, it was an older model. And he's like, oh, yeah, they tend to freak out a little bit more. And he specifically, yes, they were twitchy. Uh, They specifically call it a Hyperdyne System 120A2. Sounds a lot like a Cyberdyne, but it's not. Apparently in the original shooting script, it was referred to as a Cyberdyne Systems 120A2. But Terminator had already been made. Yes. James Cameron. He wrote the script. (laughs) But so Bishop explains that he cannot harm humans. It is in his programming not to. That could never happen now with our behavioral inhibitors. It is impossible for me to harm or by a mission of action allow to be harmed a human being. Which is part of the laws of robotics, Isaac Asimov. So the three laws are... One, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm, which is like verbatim the rule that Bishop recites here. Two, a robot must obey the orders given it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And three, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second laws. So, so long as a human is beating him up, he can't protect himself. Yeah. That's fucked. Yeah. That's totally fucked. Well, the whole point is that they're basically, there's a whole ethical consideration about this. I mean, several books written that use these laws of robotics uh, that deal with the ethics of robotics. But so she tells Bishop, stay away from me. So they all go in for their briefing where Bill Paxton will say it's a bug hunt. Which he asks if it's a bug hunt, yes. Which makes you wonder, like, is this a thing that they do? 
Yes, I think they've absolutely gone and dealt with alien life forms. Maybe nothing as advanced. I think they might just be bugs, like literal, like giant bugs or whatever. I think it's almost a direct reference to Starship Troopers, actually. But Starship, uh, like the book? The novel, yes. Oh. Yeah. But that's weird because, I don't know, they don't act like those things, like anything like that exists in... Well, there's stuff all over here, like they... uh, their particular battalion or whatever it's called, they call themselves like bug stompers or something like that. There's a logo on the ship. There's there's things that they write on their armor. There's like meta content that surrounds this that that gives off the impression that, yes, they do this kind of shit all the time. That's why they're so boastful and confident. They're used to encountering hostile alien life forms. I wish they had gone into that a little bit more. That would have been interesting. But so Vasquez talks about the fact that she only needs to know one thing. Where are they? So she can shoot it, right? Mm-hmm. There's apparently still racism in oh, yes. whatever year this is. <laughs> well, yeah, he comments on how she said aliens, not illegal aliens. Yeah, so like, is it that big of a stretch to believe that we'll still be dealing with oh, that Oh, no, shit? not at all. Not really. So... In comes Gorman, and he explains that he wants this to be smooth and by the numbers. Of course he does. Yes, Gorman is a wimp <laughs> through and through. He cannot do anything until everyone else has supposedly made things secure, and then he's not smart enough to find out when things are actually secure. So he is a wimp through and through. Meanwhile, I guess they're getting all of their supplies ready or whatever, mm-hmm. and uh, Ripley is like, well, what can I do? I feel like a fifth wheel. And they're like, well, I don't know. What can you do? And she sees that they've got this big loader machine thing. These power loaders. She says that she can use it, and she does. So and they're, they're very happy with that. <laughs> they're using the same machinery that they've been using for the past 57 years, apparently. Uh-huh. She still knows how to use it. That's a good point. <laughs> or maybe it's the one that she was using on her job while she was grounded. That's a good point, too. Maybe. But yeah, Bean and the sergeant are impressed. Yeah, a pwn. Mm-hmm. So they all get into, they're all going to go down to the planet. They've gotten there and they're getting into their ship to go down. This is where we find out that Gorman is a pleb. (laughs) That uh, when Sigourney Weaver asks him how many drops he's gone on, uh, as this drop ship is, is falling into the atmosphere and everyone's kind of nervous about it, he says 38 and then he clarifies simulated. And then when Vasquez Asks him how many combat drops, like actual live drop for actual combat. He says two, including this one. And they're like, oh, son of a bitch. You're our lieutenant. Mm hmm. Meanwhile, Bill Paxton is totally being bravado and talking about how awesome he is and how he'll protect Sigourney Weaver. Can you imagine if this scene was not in the movie of him saying that he's a state of the badass art? The ultimate badass? Yeah. Did they take this they out? They took it out of the theatrical version. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. It is. He's going around the dropship talking about all the stuff, the equipment that they have. Uh, it's for us, 
for the audience, but it's also a great reason for him to do it. He's bragging about how strong and powerful they are and how they'll take out anything in their path and they can protect Sigourney Weaver. Check it out. I am the ultimate badass. State of the badass art. You do not want to fuck with me. They ripped me. Don't worry. Me and my squad of ultimate badasses will protect you. <laughs> Independently targeting particle beam failings. What? Fry half the city with this puppy. We got tactical smart missiles, base plasma pulse rifles, RPGs. We got sonic electronic ball breakers. We got nukes. We got knives, sharp sticks. Knock it off, Hudson. He refers to a phased plasma pulse rifle phased plasma pulse rifle which we never see them use <laughs> they don't use any plasma phased or otherwise but a phased plasma rifle is something that the terminator mentions in the first terminator movie when he goes into the gun shop phased plasma rifle in a 40 watt range hey just what you see pal what you see is what you get pal or whatever it is that he says <laughs> so they're sweeping through the colony they find a couple of hamsters which they pick up on the motion detectors that they have. Yeah, they and go Hudson's in really all worried about it. there to be something, yeah. and it's just hamsters. And Vasquez teases him about that. That was deleted from the theatrical version as well. When they're going to go into one of the areas in the colony, Ripley hesitates before she goes inside. Hicks asks if she's okay, Hicks being Michael Bean, and she says, yeah, and then they go inside. That was deleted as well. But they're going through and they don't find anything except for like a last stand. This is obviously where the colonists made their last stand, right? There's barricades set up and then they find a hole in the ceiling and the floor. From what? Acid for blood, as Mad About You will say to Ripley, like, oh my gosh, you were right. She's just like, fucking yeah, I'm right. Uh Uh-huh. And so everybody that's in there kind of is laughing and they're like, there doesn't seem to be much of a problem anymore. Whatever it is, it must be gone. And so Gorman just decides that that means it's a cure. And Ripley's like, uh, we absolutely are not sure that this thing is secure, but he ignores her. Which at that point, it's like, well, then why did you bring me? Right. Like, wasn't I brought here to be an advisor? Right. In this situation that I've been dealt with that you haven't? But they ignore her. It was a flimsy premise for bringing her back in the first place. So you should be supporting it up to the point where you don't need it anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, you still need it now. Mm-hmm. But so, yeah, they find that the area was barricaded, but that it didn't hold. And just like in the first film, during what we assume was the chaotic moment of, what is this? Is this person okay? Let's look at these specimens. They've put them into jars, and some of them are alive, and some of them are not. They have two living face huggers and several dead ones. Then they pick up something, or they hear something, and Ripley's totally, like... Up front, and I know they want her to be up front for the shot, but it doesn't make a lot of sense that she would actually be up front since she knows what they could potentially yeah. be fighting at this moment. I think I think she's trying to get behind the people at up front. You know, she's not trying to take the lead. There are Marines in front of her, but she is towards the front. But if you knew what you were looking for, would you be up at the front? Would you be at the back where you could be picked off silently? Maybe I'd be in the fucking middle, but I wouldn't be up towards the front. There are only so many of them. 
So they hear something, they they see it, and it ends up being Newt. Bean, uh, they'll they'll corner her. Michael Bean will try to grab her. She will bite him. Uh huh. And then she will run through the air shafts. And of course, Sigourney Weaver, being tiny, can also go through the air shafts after her. And they find she finds that she's been living in a one of I guess a room in within the air shaft. Yeah. Where it all centralizes, I guess. She finds a picture of her and it has her school, it's from school or whatever, and it has her name, Rebecca. But the girl won't speak. And they somehow bring her in. They grab her. They force her to come with them. Right, first. I understand. But, like, how do you carry her through the shaft? Well, she exhausts herself. That ha- happens at another time, too, when she fights against Ripley. And Ripley just holds her and shh, 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 shh. It's okay, it's okay. You're safe, you're safe. Until eventually she exhausts herself. So they bring her in, and Gorman, of course, tries to talk to her to get information out of her. He has no idea how to speak to a traumatized little girl. No, none. So Once again, Gorman is incompetent. Right. And then, of course, Ripley shows up. And this, again, has to do with her being a mother, and, like, this is how she would have talked to her own daughter if she had her own daughter with her. And she's talking to her, calling her Rebecca several times. This is when... She will say, nobody calls me Rebecca except my brother, which I immediately wrote down because that's a lie. Yes. In the moment that we got between her Uh and her brother, which, of course, they took out of the theatrical version. Yep. But in that moment, he specifically calls her Newt. Yep. Timmy, you've been gone a long time. It'll be okay, Newt. Dad knows what he's doing. You are absolutely right. Yes, I have that written down as well. Mm Mm-hmm. But so she's talking to her and she asks her, where are your parents? Which seems like an obvious answer. But so eventually she finally speaks and she says, they're dead. All right. Can I go now? And Sigourney is just like, well, don't you think you'd be safer with us? You know, we've got all these Marines. She says it won't make any difference. These people are here to protect you. They're soldiers. It won't make any difference. Which, come on, Ripley, you know it's not going to make any difference. (laughs) Wishful thinking. And she's trying to comfort a child. Yes. People lie to children to make them, to calm them down all the time. Yes. So then they finally find them on their radar system. and They're all congregated in one room. They even say, it seems like a town meeting. And so they decide to go after it. They all go... Including the little girl. Uh-huh. Again. Why is she coming with you? You don't want to split up? I guess you. I understand that, but, like, then shouldn't you have maybe, I don't know, Ripley stay behind with the little girl? I'm saying, in any other horror movie, if people had suggested that they split up, we'd be, come on, don't you know? You never split up. Well, it's different when you're being chased after something as opposed to you having the upper hand, knowing where that thing is, and And then deciding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What they find are what they think are people on their scanners, and they are people, sort of. So when they arrive, this place is all covered in gunk, what we know to be the sort of thing that the xenomorphs will excrete and coat the corridors and stuff with. When they arrive where all the humans are, what's up with the humans? 
They've all been, as as Ripley will put it, cocooned. Yes. But I would have said impregnated. Both. They all have chest bursters inside of them. Yeah. But they can't use their guns because... This place is basically like a giant nuclear reactor. And uh, if a stray bullet hits the wrong pipe or the wrong lead or the wrong device, the whole thing could go up in smoke. Which I guess they included to explain why they don't use very much ammunition here, but they will use ammunition here and nothing will happen. Yes. Well, it's a risk. (laughs) It's not a guarantee, but it's a risk. They need to explain why they're going to not just shoot everything first. But yeah, so Gorman will tell the sergeant, take away all of their guns and ammunition, but he doesn't bother to explain why. So because he doesn't, they keep, some of them keep it, which will save their asses. But again, like I said, it's a nothing big risk. will happen. They obviously did split up. Oh, Gorman, yeah. Burke, right. Newt, and Ripley will stay in the APC. Mm. While the so they do drive out there together, yeah. But they stay in the command center in the APC where they can see all the vitals, everything that's on all the cameras, and give commands. That makes so they yeah. do split up a little bit. That that makes sense. They go together, and then some people stay in the command center so on the APC. I wrote my note down when they were in the car together. Yes, which yeah. by the way looks like a stripped down Batmobile. A little bit, yeah. But apparently, it's a real thing. And they made a model of it, of course, but it's an APC, so it's an armored personnel carrier. But so they are looking at all of these people. Oh, and when they keep their guns, Michael Bean specifically keeps one and says, I like to keep this by me uh, in case of close encounters. It's a shotgun, yeah. Do we believe that he would know that reference? I don't think it's a reference to the movie. I, th- I I didn't even think about that. It seemed like a perfectly natural thing for him to say without being a reference. It seems like a perfectly natural thing because we know the reference. No, 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 no. I mean, a close encounter is not a thing that the movie made up. It's just fun because in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, they're talking about an alien encounter. And he's, he's talking, talking about an alien. From a, military in- from a military perspective, that's what it's called when they're up close. I guess, but I think we all know what reference he was actually making. I didn't making. know. I didn't think about that. <laughs> I think that's, I like it even more now. <laughs> that's, that's, I, I'm so glad you brought that up, actually. I love it. But there's a thing called close quarters combat, and there's there's a completely different set of rules of engagement when you're talking about people being far away and then being close up. It's also why they only get rid of their rifle ammo and not shotguns and things like that, because that's all close up. But so they're looking at all of these dead people, and then they realize that one of them's still alive. But this person whispers, please kill me. Uh-huh. And immediately out comes a chest burster. Yes. Which they get with their flamethrower. Yep. Which is safe to use here. Yes. And then they will start to come out of the walls. And this is hidden in plain sight. So I think it was, what, two weeks ago I was talking about how insidious. Insidious. Here we have hidden in plain sight. So. Yeah, there are a few moments where if you know to look for them, you see them there in the shot. But since they're used to seeing all this like mucus covered wall and everything like that with these weird ridges and and shit like that, 
the Marines don't notice when they're actually in the room with them. And then more come when they hear this chestburster scream. Mm-hmm. And so now they're in a straight up fight. And when one when the first one gets carried away, she ends up lighting Frost on fire, which I wrote down as ironic because his name is Frost and he dies on fire. Okay. I just thought that was funny. Yes. <laughs> and it's all chaos. And several of them get injured or die. Yes, there's a lot of screaming at this moment and a lot of chaos. And all that Gorman and Weaver and Mad About You and Newt, all they can see is what is coming through on these little cameras that they have connected to their helmets. And if their helmets are moving around all crazy-like and then certain people are dying which I guess means that their cameras go out at the same time. Right. right. So, I don't know if we get any that are the cameras are still running after somebody died. That's a good point. <laughs> like the implication is that their heads are getting crushed or something. Right. But because of all of this, Gorman doesn't know what to do. He's a deer caught in the headlights. Oh, yeah. And Ripley is just screaming at him, and he's telling her to shut up, but he's not doing anything. And she finally grabs him, and she says, Do something! And he just doesn't. And so she just starts driving the car out. Yeah, she's going to crash into the wall of this part of the facility and give them a point of egress and be right there to pick them up. And once Gorman realizes, like, what's happening, yeah, he somebody's tries, taking action without his guidance. <laughs> tries to get up and stops her, but Mad About You is like, you had your chance, Gorman. And he shoves him down. Burke, Paul Reiser. You had your chance, Gorman. And so they go in to get them, and uh, Vasquez, who's best friends with... The blonde dude, I can't remember his name. He's the other one that's that's carrying the giant gun on the steady cam rig. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And they're they're like best friends. We didn't talk talk about that, but she sees him. He saves her, I think. Yeah, he does. And then he gets killed because of the acid. That's the, the alien's blood. Uh-huh. And she wants to go back and save him, and Hicks. Ripley is like, Ripley. "No, he's gone. We've got to go." Uh-huh. So then they're driving away. They've all gotten into their automobile and one jumps on the hood of the car. And does Ripley freak out? Does Ripley just keep driving because she doesn't know what to do? No. Ripley does what everyone should do when this happens. Slams on the brakes, forces him to fall off onto the ground, and then she drives over him. Yeah. (laughs) How hard is that? It's great. It's so frustrating when characters have another character that jumps on their car and they're like, I don't know what to do. I'm going to keep driving recklessly at top speed while I can't see. <laughs> yeah, totally. And they, so they call in the, the dropship that's back at the main colony to come get them. Yeah, because Bean will stop her telling her, you're just grinding metal. Yeah. <laughs> Slow down. Stop. He centers there's definitely, her. He centers her. There's chemistry there. There's definitely <laughs> chemistry here, but they don't even kiss, I don't think. No, but they have a moment later on. Yeah. Bill Paxton, who's still alive, will start yelling that both Sarge and Dietrich, they're still alive, man. Come on, we got to go back and get them. But Sigourney Weaver says you can't help them. They're just being cocooned like the others. Yeah. And they're like, well, what the fuck should we do? And Ripley's like, we need to go into space. 
And nuke the planet. Yep, nuke it from orbit. Nuke the site from orbit. It's a very, very famous line that is used in everything now. Uh And (laughs) Bill Paxton goes, fucking A! (laughs) I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Fucking A! But then, of course, Burke is like, no... See, there's all this money wrapped up in this terraforming thing. We can't yeah. just blow up the planet. And with with Gorman out of commission, because he's gone insane, he's instantly shell-shocked at this point. Um, no, I think he's been hit. He got hit with something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's out, is my point. Yeah. And with the sergeant carried away, Hicks is the ranking officer on this military operation. Yeah. So Burke doesn't get to say what they do. So when asked, okay, Hicks, what do we do? What does he say? Well, because Burke is making the stupid argument of who gets to say that we get to exterminate Oh, them? yeah, it's a dumb argument. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but so Burke says uh, he's just a grunt, no offense, which is dumb. Like he would say that to the person who gets to make that decision. Uh-huh. Like he wouldn't be kissing his ass right now. But he does. He says, he's just a grunt, no offense, to which Bean says, none taken. Yeah. Now let's go into orbit and nuke the planet. Yeah. (laughs) Say we take off, nuke the site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. It's the only way to be sure. Yes. So they need the dropship to come pick them up. So they call in the dropship. Only the dropship has been waiting at the colony site where they kind of had their home base, where the lab is and everything. And in the time that they were just sitting there chilling, Xenomorphs got on board. We'll find out later that they travel through ducts and pipes and cooling areas and things like that 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 are between the two locations. I'm sorry, when will we find this out? Later. Or did we find out in the first film that they travel through air ducts? Yes. Yes. Yes, you are absolutely right. They act like this is new information and that nobody, even Ripley, is aware of the fact that they travel through places that aren't specifically the hallways. Yeah, it's really frustrating. Like, Ripley's like, I don't understand. Where are they? And I'm like, what? <laughs> but the point is, what? My, my point is, is that there is, in fact, a duct that connects these two locations that they find out about later. And they yes. go, oh, that's how it got to the colony so fast. Yes. And so it gets on this dropship and kills the two pilots and the dropship comes crashing down. They barely avoid it and it causes severe damage to the terraforming plant. And that's going to be a big issue later. At which point, <laughs> this this is around the time when Hudson does his whole game over, man, game over thing. Yes, exactly. This is once they see the ship go down, there he's just like, game over, man. What are we going to do now? And Game over, man. Game over. Well, that's great. That's just fucking great, man. Now what the fuck are we supposed to do? We're some real pretty shit now, man. You finished. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. What are we gonna do now? What are we gonna do? Ripley is is talking to Newt, and Newt says the famous line, "It'll be dark soon, and they mostly come at night." We better get back because it'll be dark soon, and they mostly come at night. Mostly. Mostly. According. <laughs> and she's got that little accent going on. Yes, mostly. Mostly. Carrie Hen, who plays Newt, this is the only thing she did. She became a teacher. 
but she says it's her although it's one of her most famous lines she says it's her least favorite because people tease her with this line all the time. Aww. <laughs> it's the way she says it. They mostly come at night. Mostly. mostly. And I'm like, you're not, it's not British. It's not quite British, but it's like, yeah. Mostly. We don't know what accents are going to be like in the future. <laughs> but so they ask, well, when's the when is the rescue people going to come? And Bean goes 17 days. And Bill Paxton is like, well, I got news for you. We're not going to last 17 hours. And that's when Ripley has had it uh-huh. with Bill Paxton and his bullshit. And she goes, shut up, whatever his name is. Hudson. Hudson. This little girl lasted way longer than that all by herself. And I love his line. Uh, why don't you put her in charge? Like, I just, why don't you put her in charge? You better just start dealing with it, Hudson. I love how defeated he is because, yes, his famous line is, game over, man, game over, because it's funny. But this line feels more real to me. Well, then just put her in charge because it just seems so hopeless and he feels so hopeless. Yes. Ripley asks Newt, like, isn't that right? And she does a little salute. It's really cute. (laughs) Yes, it is very cute. The way that Sigourney Weaver is going to get Bill Paxton back on board is she gives him a job. She tells him, I need all the blueprints. I need to know how they are getting in and out of the complex. Yes. And then we get to see their laptops. Those are real laptops from the 80s. Oh, there you go. Mm -hmm. They didn't think they would change at all. Well, they were not meant for commercial use. (laughs) They, they they were for very specific purposes. They're really fat, thick things. Yeah. Like, uh-huh. like what kids' toys would be like yeah. now. So they, they go over all the equipment that they still have available. And this scene here, where Bean lists the inventory, when they get the blueprints back and they plan what they're going to do with, with the materials that they have, including some automated turrets, part of that scene, I should say, when they set up the robot sentries at the particular locations and they test it by throwing something in front of them and it shoots it up. And a lot of the stuff where they're watching the sentries later on, which we're going to get to when they're watching the sentries go up and they're just looking at the ammo readouts and everything like that, all not in the theatrical release. It's insane. One of the most famous scenes from this movie, not in the theatrical release. You think this is one of the most famous scenes? Oh, yeah. Watching the ammo countdown on the sentries when they're first attacked by the number of aliens that they're attacked by. Because in the scene earlier in the nest, there might there were a couple, but we didn't know exactly how many of them. And then now we got this scene that's coming up when they set up these guns at what they think is the only two access points and all the guns run out of ammo. Wait, you're telling me that that's not in a theatrical cut? The way it's shot with them watching the ammo drop down, and there's a lot of scenes from that that were not in the theatrical cut, yes. But they do, in the theatrical cut, see that happen. Yes. At least once. Yes. Okay, because I was going to say, no, I I remember that. Yes. But- And I can tell you that the scenes- that were that are new that are in the the director's cut. I've seen them, but they don't feel natural. So it would have really surprised me if that wasn't in the theatrical cut at all. 
No, it is. But there's a lot of this surrounding this that that it does seem longer. Yeah, that makes sense. It's one of the scenes I remembered from the first time I saw this movie. <laughs> so basically, exactly what I said happens. They set up these turret guns. Uh, they get attacked by swarms and swarms of aliens that they never really see. On one side, they're completely out of ammo. And on the other side, the ammo, they get like 10, 20 rounds left. And that's it. Before they retreat. They're like, man, we don't have any ammo left. And somebody comments about how, well, they don't know that. Out of all of that excitement, Kelsey, <laughs> that I just went through, what else would you like to talk about there? Well, there's a sweet scene where Sigourney Weaver is putting Newt down for a nap. There's parts of this scene that were taken out. It's cute. She's telling her uh, that, you know, you need, to, you need to sleep. You haven't slept in a long time. And she goes, I don't like to sleep. I've got, I have bad dreams. Sigourney Weaver does this whole cute thing. We didn't talk about the fact that Newt has a doll's head, but that's all that's left of it. Yeah. What does she call it? I don't remember. Oh. I'm sorry. Well, I bet Casey doesn't have scary dreams. <laughs> but so she picks it up and she's like, you don't have bad dreams, do you? And she looks inside. She goes, see, no bad dreams. And Newt takes it and Newt's just like. Ripley, she doesn't have bad dreams because she's just a piece of plastic. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't like this has happened to me. Kids do this. Oh, yeah. This I remember this specific. Specifically happening to Kelsey with one of our, our friend's sister's kid. So our, our friend's nephew, he was playing with a toy airplane and and Kelsey was like, I forget what you asked him, like, where is it flying or yeah, something like that? Yeah, where is it headed to? And he just looks at her and goes, it's not real. <laughs> well, fuck you then, little kid. <laughs> yeah, so kids really do do that kind of stuff. Like, it's so weird. You can never tell when they're going to be in a playful mood and when they're yes, not going to be. Totally. Specifically, what they took out of the theatrical release here is when they talk about Newt's mom. Newt asks, you know, do you think she's dead? And Ripley has to say, I honestly do not know. When Newt asks Ripley if she has any kids and she says, yeah, I had a daughter, but she died. All of that. Not in the theatrical release. So even more of the stuff about Ripley being a mom and all of that. And them connecting on yes. that level. Uh-huh. And in this scene, we didn't mention this either, but at this point, Michael Bean has given her a locator. Yeah. It's like a wristwatch that you can locate later, yeah. Given Ripley the yeah. locator. And so now Ripley gives that locator to Newt, which will be very important later on. And she says, I will be just over in the next room because, of course, she doesn't want Ripley to leave. She says, don't worry, nothing nothing is going to happen to you. And this is when we get the famous line. So Sigourney Weaver leaves her and goes and talks to the other adults. And they are talking about it and they're saying, you know, we know that they've got these facehugger things and they come after us so that they can then oh, I put love it inside this. of us and they're doing all this stuff. And then the chest burster comes out. The chest burster turns into the xenomorph. Okay, we understand this through line, but there's a problem with this logic. What's the problem, Kelsey? So who's laying the eggs? Exactly! Which is exactly what your question is the first film. But before Aliens came out, like, because we all have this general vague understanding that there is a queen. But we didn't when the first movie happened. Mm -hmm. And they never answered that. And apparently Dan O'Bannon, who wrote the first movie, 
his theory was that that's one of the ways they dispose of humans is they turn the humans into these sort of cocoons, these new different kinds of cocoons and grow the face huggers inside of them. So it's like this really convoluted process where xenomorphs capture the humans they turn them into eggs. They lay the face huggers in the human eggs. The face huggers come out. They plant new eggs in the humans, different humans this time, which then create the chest bursters. It's sort of this like figure eight of how you procreate, and it's really weird. Mm-hmm. So I definitely prefer the solution that they come up with here in this movie. Yes. So what is that solution? You want to, how do they figure this out? Well, this is when Bill Paxton will just be like, what about a queen? And it's a funny little interaction with him and Vasquez. He's like, ants, you mean bees have hives, yeah. Yeah, like he's like, what about hives, ants and hives? And she's just like, you mean bees? And then he says, what about the, I forget what he calls it. She's like, you mean the queen? And he's like, yeah, exactly. And from the theatrical version. Oh, really? All we get is Bishop saying, like, yeah, who lays the eggs? And it's just like foreshadowing. Oh, I actually think that might have been better. But then, but yeah, but you might not understand the concept of a queen at that point. Right. But I don't really like that they just come up with it out of nowhere. Yeah, that's fair. I mean. But he's a man of the soil. He's from Texas and and it shows. (laughs) I mean, I might think of that. Why might I think of that? Because I've seen this movie. Right. Yeah, that's a very good point. But like I say, it's it's part of our like cultural consciousness now. And yes. you can't really imagine really what it would be like not knowing this anymore. Yes. And this is when Sigourney Weaver will find out that Bishop is putting specimens in jars. And she is not happy about it. And he's just like, Burke told me to. Yeah. And she is furious. Uh-huh. She then confronts him and suddenly she knows she's looked it up he sent them out there on that trip she checked the logs after she heard what she heard from bishop and she she sees that burke is the one that sent them to the directive to go to the specific location where the ship was with all the eggs this is all him and his point that he tries to make with her is if we can get them back to earth We can make a ton of money. And she's like, you're not even thinking it through. Even if this wasn't dangerous, how do you think you can get them past basically customs in quotes? What would amount to customs? And that isn't really resolved in this scene. No, he says, I won't tell them if you won't tell them. And she's like, I'm going to fucking tell them. Right. But but we do know that they would find out like they'd inspect their gear and shit like that coming back from a planet. Right. But here's what my problem is. Uh Uh-huh. I don't believe Ripley would be this dumb. To be so outward to say, I will fuck you over? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I've always said never, like, never show your cards. It's fucking stupid before the game is over. But the point is she's so angry. It's a righteous fury that she has. She's not thinking strategically at this point. Apparently not. But guys, if you're thinking you're going to fuck somebody over... Don't tell them. It's called monologuing. And when (laughs) villains do it, it's specifically so that the the hero has time Uh (laughs) to thwart them. Don't fucking do it. 
This is when the alarm goes off and this is when the turret scene happens. So, yes. And I have here it it's it appears to me like it's the whole scene where they look at the readouts with the ammunition. Like so all we get is just the fact that the guns are going off to the uh, and the aliens are outside. But all of them like staring at like a bulk of this scene was taken out for the theatrical release. But so after they've seen that they've taken up all of their ammo, uh-huh. Bill Paxton, we get some more insight into his character saying that he had only had four more weeks and he was out, which sucks. I feel like they would not have sent him on this mission if that were the case. That's possible. I mean, if he has to go back into cryosleep, like how long would it take for them to get back? Right. Good question. But so he's shouting, we're fucked. And that's when Weaver's like, shut up, <laughs> you idiot, shut up. They see that the aliens end up retreating because the aliens just figure that they have unlimited ammo. They yeah. don't know that they were actually really close to making them finish out all yeah. of their ammo. But they're just like, well, before they ever figure that out, they're going to try and find another way in. And we need to figure that out before they do. They have another big problem right now, too. What's that? So the crash of the dropship has caused so much damage that they anticipate they only have a matter of hours or something like that before systems failure and the whole place goes up. But now they're stuck here because the, the dropship died. Well, they have another dropship on the Sulaco that's up in orbit. How do they get it down there? Well, we kind of have the resources here to do it, but since... The connection between here and the satellite we'd have to use is down. We need somebody to physically go outside at night, which is apparently when they're most active, according to Newt. Mostly. 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 <laughs> and manually enter in the commands they need at the satellite. Who's going to do that? Well, Bishop volunteers. I'll go. I mean, I'm the only one qualified to remote pilot the ship anyway. Yeah, right, man. Bishop should go. Good idea. Believe me, I'd prefer not to. I may be synthetic, but I'm not stupid. But he understands that he's kind of the best person for the job. Not only can he get out there and he doesn't have claustrophobia, which thank God. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a second. But when he gets there, he knows how to summon the dropship and all of that. So they put him in this pipe and weld it shut. And oh, my God, the scariest thing in this movie is Bishop crawling through that pipe. It's like in Shawshank Redemption. Yes. But like even narrower. <laughs> yeah, but in Shawshank, he had to go through shit. <laughs> yes, true. That is very true. <laughs> there is one scene that almost freaked me out as much as just the idea of being in that pipe. And we're almost to it right now, actually. So while Bishop is going to go take care of this, they're just stuck there waiting. Yes. So while they're waiting, Michael Bean takes it upon himself to have a nice, uh, lovely chat with Sigourney Weaver, where he's going to teach her how to shoot a gun, which requires them to be up close and personal with each other. Uh -huh. When she's looking at it, she's like, hey, what does this thing do? And he's like, oh, that's the grenade launcher. I don't think you need to worry about that. She's like, uh, fuck you. Show me how to do it. Yeah. Because she's Ripley and she's a badass. <laughs> Plus, it's an opportunity... For him to get close to her again. <laughs> yes, that's true. So when she goes into the room to check on Newt, she finds that Newt has crawled under the bed. Oh, 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 oh. 
right before this, Hicks sends Vasquez and Hudson off to do a perimeter sweep and tells them to stay frosty, which I thought was pretty shitty, considering that their buddy Frost died in a ball of fire. It's a good point. <laughs> he was like the first one to die. It's a good point. Anyway, go ahead. But so... Sigourney Weaver walks in. She's got the gun in her hand. She was just shown how to use it. She puts the gun up on top of the bed and crawls under the bed with Newt. Well, when she wakes up, she hears some scurrying noises. Uh-huh. And she immediately goes for the gun. The gun's not there anymore. So she looks around and she sees... A face hugger. Yes, scurrying around. She realizes that they have been left by someone. Someone? Who could it be? Mm -hmm. But so she immediately wakes up Newt. They start screaming. She's like, we're in danger. I I kind of, for whatever reason, I liked that. She wakes her up and the first thing she says is, you know, be quiet. We're in danger right now. Yes. And Newt knows, like, Newt goes into survival mode, which she has done several times. One gets on top of the bed. That's the first one, and they kind of trap it in the bed until they can get out. Ripley tries to break the glass, but it is unbreakable. So what is her awesome idea? She sets off the sprinkler system, yeah, which would set off an alarm, which would let everyone know that they are there. Because when she tried waving at the camera earlier, we cut to the, the monitor, and we see Burke turn off that monitor. Mm-hmm. So it's Burke, by the way, if you didn't get that. Yeah, so they end up running in, and they save both of them. And, and Hudson ends up saving Newt, actually, which is really quite sweet. Yes, it's very cute. Bean ends up saving... Bean and Vasquez have to work together, because there's a facehugger that's right in front and of it's, Ripley's it's face. it's already strangling Ripley. Yeah. This is the uh, the second scariest scene in the movie to me. Why? Facehuggers are terrifying. Of course they are. Oh my god, they're terrifying. <laughs> yes, they are. They're more terrifying than the xenomorphs. To me. They are very scary, I agree. They are very reminiscent of spiders. Yes. And, uh-huh. and they smother you. They shove something down your throat. I mean, it is a effectively a rape analogy. Yes. Like, it's terrifying. Yes, I agree. But so she immediately tells them it was Burke. And they go after him and he's just like, this is ridiculous. This is pathetic. I can't believe you would listen to this. He doesn't have a good argument at all. No, none whatsoever. (laughs) He's just like, are you going to listen to this hysterical woman? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) She goes, I don't know which species is worse. At the very least, they're not attacking themselves. Yeah, uh they they won't they won't fuck each other over for a percentage Mm -hmm. is what she says. And that is when the power gets cut. And they tell Gorman, because Gorman's pretty useless, yeah. they tell him to watch Burke. And he can't even do that right. Yes, later on that will be an issue. So they realize that clearly the aliens have found a way in. Something they have missed. But again, why is this still new information, Ripley? Yeah. While they're fighting against the aliens that have gotten in, Burke will say to Gorman, and it works for some reason, he says to him, do something, Uh (laughs) like Ripley said to him earlier. And so he does, but of course when he stops looking at at 
Burke, Burke runs away. Yeah. And unfortunately for them, he will get away and then he will seal them into a room. Yeah. He'll close the door on them and fuck them over. Twice. There's two doors he does that with. Yes. But so they're desperately trying to get out of there. And unfortunately, Hudson dies here. He gets eaten by one of the aliens from underneath. He gets carried away. Oh, yes. The assumption is he dies in the explosion later. Oh, yes. But we don't ever see him die. Good point. I think it's in one of the video games that they that you find his body later. But yeah, he doesn't die in this movie that we see. Interesting. Yeah. But so it's a cool scene. Uh, the alien comes up from underneath uh-huh. and grabs him, which is terrifying because it just means that they can come from anywhere. And that is when they ask when... Bishop is going to get there. He says, ETA, 15 minutes. He says, 16 minutes for the ship to arrive. And I had heard from multiple sources about how specific the editing is in this movie and about how when they give times, that's exactly how long it takes. They will give several times in this movie for different things, and nearly all of them are wrong. Here Mm -hmm. he says, 16 minutes. Six minutes later, it lands. Mm-hmm. I felt compelled. Like, normally, I wouldn't nitpick something like this. I would not care about something where they're like, I would assume time passed in between the cuts. Yes. But I just hear people talking about how well edited this movie is. I think it won an Oscar for editing, actually, or was at least nominated. Well, it's possible, honey, that that's just because we saw the director's cut. There's no scenes cut at this point. There's no differences between this and the theatrical at this point. Mm. Plus, it's shorter than the time, not longer. So you can't account for it by adding in scenes. Hmm. It's just as a correction to the world out there. And I'm sure there are plenty of times you can do that to things that we say. But this is one I'm aware of. No, the times are not accurate. In this kerfuffle and trying to get to Bishop in his dropship, when it does finally arrive, Vasquez gets entered by acid. And so at this point, there are Burke, Gorman, Vasquez, Ripley, Hicks, and Newt, and Bishop with the dropship. Vasquez gets injured by the acid, and Gorman goes to save her, and the two of them end up not being able to make it, and they're going to be killed. And this is a really cool thing. Okay, so I want to explain this concept to you real quick. The rifles that they use are mixes of two actual guns that they connected together. The shotgun was shortened, but it still has the pump action. The shells that it fires are not standard shotgun shells. They're grenades in the form of a shotgun shell. In in one of the documentaries, they, they show that, and it's really fucking cool. And on the end of the grenade, you can use it like a real hand grenade. So it's dual purpose. It's ammunition for the grenade launcher portion of this rifle, and you can use it as just a normal-ass hand grenade. In a pinch by double tapping the end of the shell. And then you can throw it like a real grenade. So they have one of these and they're there. They're trapped. They're going to get swarmed. And Gorman pulls out one of these grenades. Blow us all the way. Yes. So Gorman and Vasquez have kind of a moment here where they hold the grenade together and then Vasquez says to Gorman, You always were an asshole, Gorman. Here's the thing. They had never met before this mission. What is she talking about? You were always an asshole. Well, this entire trip, he's been an annoying prick. 
then that's what you say. <laughs> they make it sound like this is a relationship that's bigger than just this one mission. Look, the girl's about to die. Let her <laughs> say what she wants to. Fair enough. Fair enough. I just thought that's a weird line. They put it in there for sentimentality and it didn't track for me. Well, at some point somebody drops Newt. Yeah, Newt gets captured here and pulled away. Newt falls into the sewer and when they're trying to get her out, she falls and then she gets carried away and she screams. Ripley screams when it happens She's like, Hicks, um, hurry up. They don't kill you. We have to go. And he's like, all right, I get it. But we've got to get to the ship first. Yes. <laughs> we'll come back. They have the drop ship. So the only people on this drop ship right now are Ripley, Hicks, who's injured, and Bishop. And Ripley's like, we are not leaving Newt behind. Which is the exact opposite of what she said earlier. You can't help them. They're being cocooned. Yes. But Which here, is why, why you would think that Sigourney Weaver, you expect her to be upset that they took out all the relationship building, all the motherhood angle with her losing her own kid, finding a new kid in Newt, and taking right. that all away. Like, come on. And I do understand that that's why they included all of that, mm -hmm. right? Because Because this is not a character who would think this way. In the very first film, the first inter one, the first big interaction we get with her is her being like, "No, you're not coming inside this ship." Yes, uh huh. Like that's our first introduction fair to her enough. as a real character. Yeah, fair enough. So this is not fitting with that. So the fact that, that like, so her being mother like is the only reason this would work. Yes, and so you would think you would want those scenes in there to support it. So they get to the ship, and she immediately asks Bishop. How much time do we have? And he's like, oh, we've got plenty of time. We've got 26 minutes. And she goes, good, because we're not fucking leaving yet. Yes. On this ship, Ripley and Hicks bond a little bit more. As Ripley's about to leave, and Hicks can't come along because he's injured, and Bishop has to fly the dropship, so she's the only one that can do this. They have a little moment. We find out, you know, Ripley's first name is, is Ellen, and Hicks' first name, I think, is Dwayne. Mm-hmm. They reveal that to each other, and he tells her not to take too long. And it's like, oh, they're... But they never kiss. No. Nope. That's not what this movie's about. Uh, but they do have a little bit of a moment. So the beginning of Alien 3 is really upsetting. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was taken out of the theatrical release and added back in for this. They didn't want them to have a relationship? I guess not. So that's a little weird. Maybe they knew he wasn't going to be in the third one. Uh-huh. They check again with Bishop on the time, and there's going to be 19 minutes. Uh, that is not accurate. One minute later, the computer on the, in the facility will tell Ripley it's 15 minutes, and even that's off by like a minute or two. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that commentary be for now. So she heads into this facility knowing that she's heading back into this nest, so she tapes together her gun and her flamethrower. Uh-huh, which is badass. Yes. Uh, she sees that Newt has been left for a facehugger that's about to be hatched. Uh-huh. Ripley hears the scream of Newt and goes in and kills the facehugger. This is when she will find the queen. So 
she's carrying this giant stitched together flamethrower slash space marine rifle slung over one shoulder, carrying it one handed because she has Newt in her other hand. It's this badass bitch and mom image. Yes. That like really represents this film Mm -hmm. in a big way. I think it might even be on the cover. Uh, of, of, you know, whatever, a poster or a VHS cover or whatever. But yes, she comes in and she sees all of these eggs now. And then she, like, all the air just leaves the room and everything goes dead silent. There's no environmental noise at all. It's just pure silence when she realizes that they're in a nest. And then we hear the squelching of a cloaca. Hmm? The uh, the cloaca is where you both excrete bodily waste and eggs. So like birds have cloaca. I think oh that crabs big have cloaca. weird thing that yes, they show you. It's the you? hole that this comes out of. Yes, we basically see the giant queen ant queen bee. Like oh god, it's so gross, and we just see one of these eggs just squelching out of it. Yes, and we don't even see the queen yet, and the camera just follows it and you you it's like pulsing and mm-hmm. squelching and then you start to hear this really heavy breathing mm-hmm. god that breathing is so good you hear the heavy breathing of the queen as we finally see her and it's just this majestic xenomorph figure that's attached to like the ceiling in the wall mm-hmm. and it's just breathing at Ripley when it notices her. Yes, and her children start to slowly infiltrate the room. Yes. So, she's not going to cause harm, but Ripley shows them, don't fuck with me, and she shows them that she has the flamethrower. Yeah, and points it at one of the eggs. And they all back off. Yes. And she's like, okay, we've got a good I don't fuck with you, you don't fuck with me (laughs) attitude. Right? I like this place. And so they're starting to, she's starting to walk out, but one of them starts to hatch. And she's like, fuck this. Yeah, she's just like, I can't. Flamethrowers <laughs> the whole damn thing, and we hear mm-hmm. the queen just screech. Mm-hmm. So good. Yes. So the, this queen. So Ripley does what she has to do. So with all the appendages and the points of articulation on this puppet that Stan Winston made. This puppet took like 15 people to operate. I believe that. Including two of the puppeteers physically inside of this thing as it was operating. And apparently this is what convinced, I don't know if this is true, but it's what I've heard. This is what convinced Steven Spielberg to hire Stan Winston to do the animatronics for Jurassic Park. He went back, saw the this impressive queen figure, and, you know, Stan Winston's very famous in the effects world, but doing something as big and awesome as this queen, I guess, is what, you know, oh, you can do a T-Rex then. Oh, yeah, they were still using actual animatronics, weren't they? Well, that's the first one where they kind of melded the two. Yes, yeah. But Stan Winston was the guy but that did But did they that. make a giant T-Rex? Yeah. The one that's crashing down into the cat, that's a, that's that's a, a real puppet? That's a Stan Winston puppet. Yeah, specifically, I mean, we haven't done Jurassic Park on the show, but very famously, with all the rain effects that they had, mm-hmm. this this thing 
that was foam was just absorbing all this rain and it would become so heavy that the mechanics could control it and it would just like shudder and shake and freak everyone out. <laughs> anyway, Stan Winston, totally cool. So the queen detaches. Yes. Because at this point, she mad. Yes. She's really mad. And Bishop tells them, you now have four minutes. Or or the computer tells them they've got four minutes until they got to get the fuck out of there. Of course, as they're leaving, the flamethrower starts to be like, oh, I'm not going to work now. Just like, you know, every horror movie when the flashlight stops working yes, at the most totally. inopportune time. And they are going up. Oh, I love this scene because we have already been told on multiple occasions without the film having to say it out loud. These are very intelligent creatures. Yes. Like the movie never has to say that because they just show you they learned how to cut the goddamn power. Yeah. Okay. These are intelligent creatures. So when this happens, it's not surprising. They get in an elevator to go up. Uh-huh. And the alien sees them do this uh-huh. and sees that the lights are moving. Okay, looks like this one's going to open up. I'm going to take the elevator as yep. well. Now, does the alien necessarily know if it's going to work the same, how it works, what it's going to do? No. It's very lucky in that regard, It yes. is lucky, but still, it makes sense that it would follow the steps that we would take. So they couldn't actually fit this thing in the elevator i wondered about that i was like isn't it too big yeah so you what specifically you can't see the back of the elevator because it's very dark because later on when ripley is standing on this platform carrying newt and bishop is showing up at first she thinks bishop left without her yeah because the, the countdown is happening Fucking and there's synthetics. like exactly yes she thinks she's going to be really upset and then the elevator comes and it opens up and it's pitch black dark and then the head comes out and then it crawls out it's pitch black dark because if the lights were on you would see that number one she doesn't have a tail and number two the back of this elevator the wall was removed and replaced with black trash bags yeah for all of the puppeteers and everything like that to control it so that bothers me a little bit but oh well yeah you imagine if it was a real thing it it crumpled up in there you know I don't know that it an alien. I mean, body. I guess we've seen the aliens get all crumpled up yeah, against the uh -huh. wall and then they spread out. I guess yeah. that's true. But yeah, so she shows up. She can't find Bishop. The queen comes outside of the fucking elevator. But just in time, the ship shows up. Yes. And saves them. And at one point, trying to get away and with all the explosions happening everywhere, the dropship shifts. It lands on the platform it scrapes it as it's trying to lift up its landing gear it gets snagged on a bunch of material there and uh, theoretically that's where the queen finds her opportunity because it's never said exactly how the next scene happens <laughs> but theoretically that's when it takes its opportunity when the landing gear gets snagged they fly away and the whole thing fucking explodes. Yes. This is where Hudson would have died. <laughs> yes. Hudson's dead now. Yes. <laughs> and Burke. <laughs> Apparently there is a scripted scene. I don't know if it was ever filmed, but she finds Burke when she goes back to this nest and he's still alive and he asks her for help and she gives him one of those grenades and nice. just walks away. Nice. <laughs> 
But so. We didn't say Burke died way earlier. Yeah. Yeah. But so Ripley is talking to Bishop. Because they've landed back in the Sulaco. Yes. And everything seems okay. When out of fucking nowhere, Bishop gets torn in half. Yes. So they're talking and they're complimenting each other. And the moment that Ripley finally warms up to a synthetic, it, it's just the perfect dramatic moment for this to happen is exactly when he dies. You can see it coming from a mile away. I say dies in quotes. He doesn't die here. He's a synthetic. They yes, can't, exactly. They can't die unless you but destroy them. But he gets <laughs> stabbed through the chest Right then, and then the we see from the camera angle that it's coming out of the landing gear of the dropship, and it's perched there, and it lifts him up to her, and then just rips him in half. Mm-hmm. And his upper torso and head will stay alive while all this, while the rest of the movie is happening. <laughs> so now it's Hicks is recuperating. He's not there. He's in like the med bay or whatever. Ripley and Newt and the Queen are here in this docking bay. She tells Newt to run, and Newt runs to the first place she thinks of, which is under the grates in the floor, because that's what she does. Ripley manages to run away and actually get out of the loading bay. Mm -hmm. Only problem is, is now the queen is stuck in this loading bay, and so is Newt. Yes, and like we've said, she's a very smart alien, so she very quickly realizes where Newt is mm-hmm. and realizes very quickly that she can remove the tiles on yes. the floor. So it's a game of cat and mouse. She's going after her. She ends up getting her. But when that happens... Get away from her, you bitch, happens. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the, the bay doors open. There's an alarm blaring Boom. and in comes Boom. this power loader. Get away from her, you bitch. <sighs> Get away from her, you bitch. Yes. There's actually a, a person inside behind her. Oh. Like she's, they're pressed together like they'd be jumping tandem out of an airplane. And he's kind of disguised as this power loader assisting and moving. And a bunch of pulleys and cranes and things like that are helping keep it up and move it around. And so then there's basically a fist fight between the queen and this power loader. And we need to consider the fact that the tail is a factor as well. And it's this whole fucking thing. Yes, and and she, just like in the first film, her plan, throw him out the airlock. Yes. So she, wor- she works her way over there with the alien, but the alien grabs on to the thing, because the alien's like, if I'm going down, so are you. Yeah, they fall into the airlock. Yes. <laughs> Ripley climbs out of the machine. Ripley doesn't fuck around. She doesn't tell a goddamn person what her plan is. She's just like, fuck this shit and opens up the airlock. Yes, while she's still in it. No idea where Newt's at. No, no. idea where uh, the synthetic is. Yeah, so just half, of, half of Bishop and Newt are now sliding towards this airlock as she's trying to climb out of it. Is this possible? Who gives a shit? <laughs> Oh, totally impossible. She full on climbs up a ladder uh-huh. while being while the, the airlock is open. Yeah, it doesn't I mean, make any sense. Why she can't close that door, why she right? has to climb out and close the door on top, who knows? Right. But she does. Uh, Bishop grabs onto the floor and grabs onto Newt, saving her. And she hits the button and closes this door. Her foot almost gets trapped, but she pulls it out just in time. 
And they are saved. And Newt calls her mommy. Yes, it's right here in this moment. Moment. And Bishops is not bad for a human. Mm-hmm. And his cute. distorted voice. And they all get into their cryopods. To sleep they go. Yep. That is the end that of the That is the film. end. Of- Jesus, this is going to be a long episode. <laughs> okay. Extra thoughts, Kelsey, about this movie. One thing I did want to mention. When Ripley is confronting Burke, they have a fun little conversation. She is <laughs> confronting him about the fact that he told the people to go and to look where she talked about it. And she's like, how the fuck could you do that? And he's like, it was a bad call. (laughs) And she goes, those people are dead. Yes. And she says, I'm going to make sure they nail you to the wall, which again, never show your cards. Yeah. And he goes, after he's tried to get her to go with the money, he's like, you know, I thought you'd be smarter than this, Ripley. And she goes, well, I'm happy to disappoint you. Yeah. It's a very cute conversation. Yes. The pistols that they use are just regular undressed pistols. They're Volks pistols, H&K VP70, uh, which are German pistols that weren't being made at the time, but they were completely unmodified. They just look slightly futuristic and weren't that common. So they're just like, meh, sure, let's use this. I already explained what their rifles were made from. Interestingly, Sigourney Weaver is extremely anti-firearm. Like, very, very much so. She won't even watch movies that have guns in them. And she she talks about how she... What? Donates to anti-gun organizations and things like that. Like, she is very, very anti-gun. She was brought on to... Like, I don't think she realized exactly how much shooting was going to happen and how much shooting she was going to be required to do. She's thinking, like, flamethrowers and stuff, like, from the first one. She was really interested in the storyline and the whole motherhood angle, which, again, was why she was so pissed off. Bill Paxton, on the other hand, I mean, he grew up firing guns in Texas because, of course, he did. <laughs> Apone, Al Williams, if I remember correctly. He, well, he was in the military. Yes. He talks about having, quote unquote, Vietnam syndrome. So everyone with these guns, he was like, if anyone pointed a gun at me, I would ram it down their throat. It's like an involuntary reflex. And apparently everyone on set had like really bad trigger discipline, too, where they just have their finger resting on the trigger. It's like, fuck no. And like he... Fixed the whole entire cast right away because he just had these involuntary reactions to this stuff. Even if they're fake, like blanks can hurt you, too. And, you know, so he was like very on point about that. Well, we all know that you can't trust blanks. Yes. Rest in peace, Brandon Lee. Yes. (laughs) Also, famously, Cameron and his wife at the time, they were only married for a couple of years. They got married during, I think, pre-production on this movie. Had a hell of a time working with this crew at Pinewood Studios in London. A large portion of this crew was the same crew that worked with Ridley Scott on the original Alien. So this franchise kind of like in a way belongs to them. They've worked on it longer than this asshole has. And they had no idea who he was. Like what's the previous Jim Cameron movie that came out? I don't know. Terminator. Well, that was a huge success. Yeah. Except it hadn't been released in London yet. Oh. So nobody had seen it. Mm. And apparently he set up a screener to be like, hey, this is who I am. If if you want an idea of what I do, this is it. Uh, And like practically nobody showed up. And so like nobody knew this guy. Nobody respected him. And then he had the gall 
to fire his director of photography, his cinematographer, on the spot. For good reason, I must say. What happened? Let people do their jobs. They know what they're doing. Even if you're a director, yes, by all means, let people, let the professionals handle their job. But this cinematographer refused to light the nest with anything but bright lights showing off all the detail. And he's like, no, it needs to be dark and creepy. We're making a horror movie here. And the guy refused. He's like, no, I like these sets. This is how it's being lit for my camera. Oh, that's some bullshit. And James Cameron was like, you're fired. Yeah. On set. Well, yeah. And then the rest of the crew walked out. Oh, shit. Yeah. So his wife, who's a producer on the film, had to, like, convince them to come back. And they ended up hiring another No, but that's, cinematographer. He, he was absolutely yes, in the right. Very much so. You, you absolutely should talk to the director and say, look, I think it should be like it this. It should be a collaborative effort. Exactly. Yes, yes. But if your director says, no, this is the way I want it, he's the director. Yes. That's his job. Mm -hmm. Your job is to make it look the way he wants it to. He found them to be very arrogant and hard to work with, the entire crew, and refused to ever go back to Pinewood Studios. And as far as I'm aware, he has never gone back. Mm. Interesting. I mean, not that James Cameron can't be a petulant child himself, but that I would no, probably do the, the same way, thing in his place. That's the way theater works. <laughs> yes. The director directs. Like, again, you if you are ever in a position where you feel like your director would never listen to you, then you're then he's an asshole. Yeah. But if you If talk he makes to a you, decision, you yeah, do what he you says. You have to yeah, follow uh -huh. what their decisions yeah, uh -huh. are. So I just thought that that was kind of fun. Apparently, also, Bill Paxton was like, they're lazy. <laughs> Yeah, but you never really can trust actors. Right, no, 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 totally. <laughs> the reason is, is that, like, the Hollywood standard at the time was 12-hour workdays. And that's not the standard in London, in England. Oh, They work eight-hour workdays. Yeah. Which, you know what? They've earned, and they should. Mm -hmm. I'm totally on, on their side with this. I don't feel like it's, like, it makes a lot of sense to call them lazy. But as an actor who's used to working 12 hours at a time, you're right. like, they would just leave and he'd be like, well, what the fuck? Right. <laughs> I understand that. But yeah, like, look, people have lives. Yes. What movie were we watching? Oh, Black Swan. Yeah. Look, I got a life. Like, you uh, know, like, the piano player, yeah. <laughs> it's unfair for you to be like, well, I'm more passionate about this, so you should yeah. be willing to stay. Like, that's mm -hmm. so much bullshit. Yes. Yes, I, you do things that you love, that you enjoy, but you do them to make money as well as a job because you have a life. You have other things that you want to do. And people that are only their jobs and waste all, every waking hour doing their job, that makes them happy. Great. But that doesn't make you a better person. I just know that, like, I, okay, guys, I teach middle school, <laughs> middle school, and I've had people be like, do it for the kids, Kelsey. Well, <laughs> Don't you do it for the kids? No, 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 no. Actually, it's actually the opposite. Um, I've had lots of people be like, uh, your kids need more hours of rehearsal. You think I don't know that? Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> These are children, uh -huh. and I can't keep them for that many hours a fucking day. Yes. Like, these are kids. It doesn't matter how long I make them work. In fact, the longer I make them work, the, the worse, worse it's it going to be. Yeah, uh -huh. Like... 
come on. People have lives. People have things outside of this. Just because I'm passionate about it doesn't mean I'm going to run my kids into the ground. Right. Well, aliens. (laughs) Anything else to say? Uh, Great movie. Everybody should see it. Yeah. It's really good. What do you think it has on Rotten Tomatoes? Better be fucking high. Um, At least 84. It has a 97. Good. Which is one percentage lower than the original, which had a 98. While Alien was a marvel of slow-building atmospheric tension, Aliens packs a much more visceral punch and features a typically strong performance from Sigourney Weaver. Yes. Its Metacritic is 84, and its cinema score is an A. Good. People came out of that movie feeling very good. Good. Keeping in mind, you gave the original a 95, I gave it a 100. What would you give Aliens? I was going to give it a 97. Really? So even like exactly on with the Rotten Tomatoes score? Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, that was the score I already had in mind. I was going between 96 and 97. That's funny. I had a 95 all set up for myself. Yeah, we know. Yeah, we know. Because <laughs> you're wrong. <laughs> the first one's better. It's a matter of personal preference. I understand. They're both incredibly good. Listen, if you're a regular listener, you know how much I love patient movies that build tension through patience i can appreciate it yes but i squirm i understand i I appreciate it it, and i can see what they're doing and an alien absolutely it works but still i'm like dude we've been sitting here for like you know 10 minutes and nothing's happened like i get it it's funny that we sat like we're talking like we have completely differing opinions on it you gave it a 97 i gave it a 95 i know i'm just saying it bothers me Uh uh-huh you, and it's just because I grew up with this one. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. Like, so for me, it's just like, it's a little bit better just because I know it more, probably. Would it bother you to say that I think Terminator 1 is the better movie? I already know you think that. And again, you're wrong. I like Terminator 2 more. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy Terminator 2 more. I think Terminator 1 is the better movie, though. You're wrong. Both films took great movies and simply built on them. And made them action-packed romps, which neither of the first films are. You say they made that, them, they, and they I get what you mean. completely changed the genres. I see what you're saying. It's hilarious because I don't like action. I know. But I like both these. Because like I said, <laughs> it takes these fantastic premises and it just builds on them. It doesn't negate anything that happened yep. in the first film. It doesn't say, oh, that's bullshit. We're throwing that out. None of that. Mm-hmm. It, it builds on it. Yeah. And everything it has to build on, I like. Fair enough. So it's think- better because it's more of what you like. In fact, the only reason it's not getting a 100, I can think of a couple of reasons. Number one, it's just a little too long. And I get that. I get that we watched the director's cut. It's just a little too long. <laughs> And then on top of that, the little girl's accent is weird and distracting. It definitely is. And it's not that she's a bad actress. She's a child and she's perfectly fine. Okay? She's not the most, she's not going to be Gage from Pet Cemetery, but she's also not every other horrible ch- yeah. child we've ever seen on a, in a horror movie. She's very much... In the middle and closer to the side that's good. But still, it is very distracting the way she talks. And then thirdly, and I'm going to say this one a little bit, because I don't know. 
Exactly. Because obviously I wasn't alive when this came out, so I never got to see it in the theaters, and I don't know how people experienced it I was alive when this came out. In the theater. Did you experience this in the theaters? Yep, I did. No, you I didn't. was three years old. <laughs> My point being, I totally get his decision to keep it dark, but I will tell you this. This seeing it on art, we we have a pretty uh, pretty nice TV, um, <laughs> the nicest TV I've ever had, and I can tell you right now, this is the first time that I was like, oh, I've literally never seen half of the aliens that are in this movie. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Just never seen them because it's always been so dark. Yeah. I mean, I'm not an idiot. I knew what was supposed to be in the darkness. Yeah. It's just that I just kind of assumed. That, like, it's there, but you can't see it. Mm -hmm. And this was the first time that I was like, oh, my God, (laughs) there's all these aliens everywhere. And I think that's, it's a good thing, but it's also a problem. Yeah. I never knew that (laughs) it was in the film. Well, you didn't have a Laserdisc player. I definitely did not. You didn't see it in the theater. Nope. Which are two scenarios where you might have had a better chance to actually see it. But even still, with a Laserdisc player, it's only going to be as good as the TV you're watching it on. So, yeah. yeah. But so, like, I I think that while that was a good decision, he also needed to consider that. Just buy the set on Blu-ray. Right. But, like, I I grew up I'm not suggesting that for you. I'm saying for the people out there. And for the past 30 years, I never knew Uh there were that many aliens on the screen. Fair enough. Fair (laughs) enough. I think there's a lot to to like about aliens. And I do. I would just like to point out that despite the fact that I said Alien is better, I gave this movie my highest rating of the year so far. So, like, I fucking love this movie. But, yeah, I like the first one better. (laughs) All right, Kelsey, that is Aliens. God, we talked for Aliens, like, as long as some entire episodes. Oh. A lot of this is going to be cut, yes. But, like... This recording right now, okay, I want to be straight with you, a lot is going to be cut. And don't worry, it's none of the good stuff, it's a bunch of bullshit. Um, But the recording is two hours and 50 minutes long, just for aliens. This is probably our longest single recording we have ever done. So, good times. Good times. (laughs) So let's uh, let's let's move on from aliens now. And before we get into our next film, horror trivia, Kelsey. A thick fog rolls in after a powerful storm, bringing deadly creatures. In what film directed by Frank Darabont? I thought up until the end, right there, I was like, "Oh, that's the fog." <laughs> it's a pretty interesting clue for a movie called The Fog. No, that's The Mist. Yes. Yes. Stephen King and Frank Darabont's The Mist. Yes. All right, Kelsey. In Alien Covenant, according to Ridley Scott, Danny McBride's character was inspired by what other famous movie character? Think about Danny McBride's character. Oh, well, wasn't the part written for him? The design of the character. Famous movie character. Well, he wears the hat. Mm-hmm. He's in spaceship. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, but he doesn't act like him at all. The first thing that comes to mind is the dude at the end of I'm Afraid of the Bomb. Dr. Strangelove? Dr. Strangelove. That is exactly right. But 
But they don't act the same. He's supposed to be Slim Pickens or Major like King Kong. That guy's an idiot. Like the character design was inspired by him, oh, not the, the character. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's supposed to be like a schlubby guy wearing a cowboy hat in a in a in an aircraft. And that's why he knows Country Road. And we never find out why she's saying that, and yes. it drove me insane. <laughs> well, let's get into Alien Covenant then, Kelsey. Directed by Ridley Scott. He's back. <laughs> Screenplay by John Logan and Dante Harper. Based on a story by Jack Paglin and Michael Green. Based on characters created by Dan O'Bannon and Ron Shusset. Starring Michael Fassbender, Catherine Waterston, Billy Crudup, Danny McBride, Jussie Smollett... <laughs> and a bunch of other people, too, including a cameo appearance by Guy Pierce. What is Alien Covenant about? A group of terraformers are on their way to a planet. And on their way to that planet, there's a problem which wakes them up. Or at least the main crew. They have to fix this situation. And they come across a different planet. And they're like, let's go there instead, because opportunity knocks, right? Not a good idea. <laughs> it is a sequel, a direct sequel to Prometheus, which is a sort of prequel to the rest of the Alien trilogy. I think what we can learn from these movies, guys, is that if you're ever in space, just ignore cries for help. Yeah, I guess. Just it's horrible. That's horrible. Because they are never ever what you think they're gonna be or at least when they are what you think they're gonna be you don't make a movie about that <laughs> but i think it's very obvious well first of all it's streaming with the subscription on fx now you can rent it for three to four dollars on most services again cheapest on microsoft and redbox you can buy it for 10 to 15 dollars on most services it's cheapest on amazon and voodoo it is very obvious that Ridley Scott was put off by the fact that people didn't like Prometheus. They thought it was too unlike the other Alien movies, and he wanted to compromise. And this is a compromise of his original vision for the Prometheus trilogy, which was going to be three movies, and now that may never happen, and what people were expecting from an Alien movie. And he just made this a straight-up Alien movie that latches onto the end of Prometheus. That's what it is. Should people watch it or shouldn't they? I would say if you've got nothing to do and it happens to be on, you can watch it. It's not a bad movie. It's not. It really isn't. But I actually would go so far as to say it's a good movie. But there's nothing about it that like, like I said, why do I like Aliens? Because it builds on the last film. It Mm -hmm. builds on the things I liked. This movie... Said all the things you liked. Ah, we're taking that out. Yeah. Uh, we're just gonna give you this new story, uh, basically, so that we can pretend like the last movie didn't happen. And I'm like, then, 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 just make a new movie. I don't. Right. Why? Yes. No. It's it's pretty bad, and I can't seem to reconcile the end of this movie. Even if there was a third movie, how they would wrap back around to Alien, which is why I always treat it as kind of like a reimagining reboot and not actually a real live prequel. But with this movie, Ridley kind of committed to the fact that it was a prequel. And 
he tries to explain where the xenomorphs really, 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 like the xenomorphs we know come from. And unfortunately, he's already closed the door in the last movie to how we could go from here to the first Alien movie. And he'll, well, he'll do that for sure in this movie. So. Well, I would want to sit down and, and look at the exact dates and, and everything. There, that doesn't exist. Because there, there's a hole in the timeline, which is the third movie in this trilogy, which will never happen. It might happen 10 years from now. Who knows? But this movie did not do well. The first movie didn't do as well as they thought it was going to. They thought they could pick it back up with the second one, and that one didn't do as well either. I'm not saying it wasn't – people didn't think it was good. I'm saying that it didn't perform well. It also sucks that the best actor in this film has the worst accent. Oh, my God. God, Fassbender's American accent is terrible. <laughs> it and, is And we're pretty awful. sure he's done an American accent before. Yes. And I can't remember it being this bad. No. But th this is specifically because they want you to tell the difference between the two. And it's, Oh, they don't know that there's two yet. We haven't gotten to that point. But it's no good. Yes. It's... Because, I mean, no one in America, it, what you always want to say is that Americans have hard R's, and that's what makes us American in our speech. But uh, there's a difference between making the hard R sound and putting the emphasis on the R sound. Yes, it's it, in linguistics, it's called rotive, right? So a language is either rotive or non-rotive, and American English is famously rotive, and most British English accents are famously non-rotive, and so you just drop your R's, and that's how Americans make British accents. And it sounds like the British to American equivalent of that. You know what I mean? Of a, oi, governor! It sounds like that, <laughs> but in reverse. You know what I mean? It's not Tobin, it's like, he talks like this. <laughs> Cyril Figgis. Cyril Figgis. <laughs> Hi, I'm a huge fan of cock, and my name is Cyril Figgis. But you know what I mean? Like he, he, he. And what's a what's a phrase with an R? Seashore. Like he talks like shore. Yes, sir. <laughs> sir. And it's like no, no American talks like that. Nope. So like, yeah, it's it. And probably everyone else around the world probably doesn't even fucking notice. But as an American, you're like, wow, that's really bad. Yeah. And generally, generally, English to, like, British English to American English accents are pretty good. Yeah, usually they don't have a lot of trouble with and it. And occasionally we'll be like, oh, they had trouble with that line or whatever. But this is, like, the whole fucking thing. Well, yeah, and it also depends on what kind of accent because sometimes they, they try to do kind of a, a low southern, southern accent, accent yeah, because uh -huh. that's easier to do. Uh -huh. uh, I've noticed that. Ewan McGregor does that a lot. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, Ewan, no. <laughs> that doesn't sound natural at all. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, if you're curious about what comes after Prometheus, if you want to see more of David, and you'd like to see David as a good guy instead. But that's one of the problems. I You end up kind of liking David at the end of the first one, just slightly. Yes. And then uh -huh. they're like, fuck that. No, he is a... 100% villain in this movie. Yeah. But there's another version of him, the American version of him, which is a good guy that you really like. Yes. So, like, yeah, I mean, if that sounds intriguing to you, if you never wanted to see Numi Rapace ever again 
and you were afraid you might see her in this movie, don't worry. No, you do see her. Yeah, you see her fucking dead. I wish they had just completely cut her out. Or I wish that she had actually genuinely perished. Because giving us a bullshit story about it and then telling us what actually that happened. That story is not real. And yeah, uh-huh. So, fucking sucks. It's... <sighs> I mean, and you think they would have learned their because lesson because she couldn't get it into her schedule. But you think she they would have learned their lesson? She said she wanted lesson. to be in it, and she couldn't work it into her schedule. You think they would have learned their lesson with Alien Three, famously panned? <laughs> People were very upset about the fate of some characters <laughs> between movies, <laughs> and we get the same fucking thing again in the franchise here. They fly away on a ship, and they're perfectly safe. And by the time the next movie rolls around dead yeah like if you want her in the film fucking wait yeah did you need to have it released when you did no you didn't because it didn't do well so (laughs) that was absolutely not a necessity anyway it's two hours of your life if you have that to spend watch it if you're interested vaguely yeah watch it but if you didn't like prometheus you will not like this instead they tried And if you did end up liking Prometheus, despite its many gaping flaws. Yes. If you did, which we both did after we saw it again, like we were like, that's actually a pretty good movie. It just has these enormous flaws, which ruin it. But aside from that, the rest of the film is actually pretty good. And then you see this and this movie's like, we're not going to be bad. We're going to be a perfectly fine movie. But you know all that good stuff you liked? Yeah. No, I'm not doing any of it. But it's still, a, it's it's still, it's not as glaring as in Prometheus, but it's still a lot of people making really dumb decisions mm-hmm. and just turning off their common sense. And that that's necessary for the plot to move forward is really kind of annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can uh, ignore that, I liked the movie. I do think it's a good movie. It's just there's, man, it, oh, you're battling against a lot of BS to get to that good movie. And yeah, anyway, I don't know how to say take our advice or leave it because that's really muddled advice, Um, but do so. When we get back, we will talk about 2017's Alien Covenant. It's the first ever large scale colonization mission. We're making history here. This is weed. What are the odds of finding human vegetation this far from Earth? Who planted it? What happened here? Covenant, do you read me? I need you back here right now. I need you. Baby, just calm down, sweetheart. Calm down. Tell me to calm down. You're breaking up. All of this is to start our new life. All right, correction, Kelsey. There were originally supposed to be four movies in this Prometheus series, and we've gotten two of them with uh, no future movies in sight. So, interesting. There were going to be Prometheus, Covenant, and like a Covenant Part 2, and then the fourth one was going to tie it back into the original trilogy. It was going to do all the heavy lifting of incorporating it into the entire franchise. 
and this this one was supposed to be called Paradise Lost, I want to say, if I remember correctly. So it would have been Prometheus and Paradise Lost. But like I said, they tried to be like, uh, the Prometheus tactic didn't work. <laughs> we got to be more explicitly alien. <laughs> so they called it Alien Covenant. So can you get us started on Alien Covenant? How does it begin? It begins with the creation of David, who we met in the first film. Yep. Played by Michael Fassbender. Yep. And we get to see Guy Pierce again as Waylon, I guess. Yeah. That's who he is. Yeah. And David wakes up and sees all the things around him and everything is like the best. Everything's super expensive. White. Rome. Chair. Carlo Bugatti throne chair. Piano. Steinway concert grand. Art. The Nativity by Piero della Francesca. And then Guy Pierce, Waylon, will talk to him and say, I am your father. And he says, perfect. And, and David goes, am I? And he says, perfect. And he says, your son. And he goes, you're my creation. Yeah. And he asks him what he wants to name him and he decides with David because he sees a replica of the David mm -hmm. in or his the home. real thing maybe the real thing is in a museum in Italy in the 2100s <laughs> though i guess actually the late 2000s so this is actually pretty close to this is like 2070 something i think or something like that i would imagine it's a replica but who knows He's just that rich and influential. It's interesting that he does specify that he's his creator. It's almost like Waylon wants all the benefits of being a father, but none of the responsibilities. Yeah. And like the a predominant like a predominant theme of aliens is motherhood. Not so predominant, but still very big is the idea of creation versus fatherhood. It seems like the difference between these two things is love, and I don't think Waylon loves David. I think David loves his creation. You think David loves his creation in this film? Yes. I don't know that love is the right word. I think he feels the same obsession that Waylon does in creating life. Right, but I wouldn't characterize it as love. You think that if somebody shot David, Waylon would be devastated? Or would he just make another one? He would make another one. Yeah. Whereas David's creation is shot in this and he wails. More, I think, because of the situation. I, But also, he's a completely different character than Waylon is. Yes, so, no, that's my point. Uh, but I don't think it's love. I think it's more frust. I think he was more frustrated with the fact that these people who are here, who he does not want here, mm -hmm. are uh, ruined his creation. Sure. That's fair. Yeah. But so... David's just kind of trying to understand his situation, and he basically kind of gets to the point of, I will serve you. You will die. I will not. It's when he comes to that uh, realization, and at that point, he's all the way across the room. He was playing on the piano, and Guy Pierce was sitting, and there's T sitting right next to Guy Pierce. Mm -hmm. And right after David says that, you will die, I will not. Guy Pierce says, get me the tea. Yeah. Exerting his power over David. Exactly. So, like, he didn't like that David came to that 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 
yeah, that understanding very quickly immediately understood that he was somehow superior to his creator. Yes, which is really interesting. He plays on the piano Wagner from Das Rheingold, which apparently is about this character who trades love for power and kills all the gods in the process. Oh, yeah. So you can see that there are parallels here. We talk about how David loves loves in quotes his creation he loves in quotes shaw and he kind of like gives that up in many ways in exchange for in his eyes in exchange for power in his eyes yeah the power to create but i do not see this as love in any way right that's why i put it in quotes yeah okay so cut to 2104 I'm not sure when that happened. December 5th, 2104. So this is 17 years before Alien. No, I was saying I don't know how far in advance the whole David thing happened. Right. Yeah, it's many years because there's like 10 or 11 years between Prometheus and Alien Covenant in the timeline. And then this is well before that. And... Wayland grows much older in the meantime. So this is like in the 70s, hmm. the the scene with David, something like that. So we see a colonization vessel where there is a different version of David. And this version's name is... Walter. Walter. And yeah, just immediately the accent was just like, oh no. Ooh. Oh, no. But again, they wanted you to be able to see the hear the difference very easily. It was shorthand. I think you can talk about there being reasons, like, Walter and David will meet, and Walter will explain, kind of like how Bishop explains that there have been improvements since Ash in Alien. Walter explains that there have been improvements since David, Mm -hmm. and that the passion, the emotions that David could exhibit made people feel uncomfortable. He was not a commercial model. He was specifically for Wayland, and when he tried to commercialize it, people didn't like it that much, so they toned down some of those elements. I imagine changing the accent can be explained in that same way as well. Because there's like, and and sorry for all of our British listeners out there, but there is a sort of arrogance inherent in the sort of posh accent that Fassbender has as David versus his just, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? His uh, working class American. I was going to say working class, but he he also like enunciates very clearly and everything. So it, uh, yeah, there is something about the American accent that like diffuses that sense of superiority. Not that Americans can't. Only in our eyes. Yes. <laughs> 100%. But I imagine that the market for these Walters was probably predominantly American. Or even Japanese. But so he is just like David was. He's in charge of the ship while the humans are. In cryo sleep. Yeah, but they get hit with the meteor, I think? No, there is a, like an ion storm or something like that. I don't remember. Neutrino storm. A neutrino burst was detected in sector 106. This could trigger a destructive event. Report to the bridge immediately. Well, something happens out of the blue. And so the crew is woken up on purpose because the crew has to fix the situation. And when they wake up, it's just a total chaos. And 
immediately we are going to meet our main girl. Catherine Waterston, who plays Daniels. Yes, and we recognize her from Fantastic Beasts. Yes, actually, interesting little anecdote here about specifically Fantastic Beasts. So Fantastic Beasts was wrapping up. I think they were doing pickup shots when filming was about to begin for this movie. And Catherine Waterston and Ezra Miller became very good friends on the set of Fantastic Beasts. And so they would like hang out a lot. And apparently, apparently, I wasn't able to confirm this part, but apparently Ezra Miller is the one that filmed her audition tape. But they had all these wigs for all the characters in Fantastic Beasts. Uh-huh. Because, you know, people's hair change. <laughs> and so by the time you do those these pickup shots, you need to make sure their hair looks the same as in the movie. So there are all these wigs out there. And Waterston didn't like the idea of having her her like witch haircut as she describes it i can't be this like goofy flawed witch in space (laughs) it just seemed really wrong to me she says i'd been hanging out with ezra miller on that film and i really loved his dumb haircut from that movie who is ezra miller the flash oh the cute one okay yes you know he has that kind of bowl haircut in this movie in Fantastic Beasts. Oh yes, that hideous yes. Yeah, and so when I got this job, I was still shooting that, and it was near the end of shooting Fantastic Beasts. And in the hair and makeup trailer, there they were making wigs just in case we had to do pickups and people's hair had changed. So I saw his wig in the corner, and I said, "Can I just try that on?" And so I put that on and showed it to Ridley and begged him to let me do it, and he did. So it's really just I'm ripping off Ezra. <laughs> That's why she has this sort of bullish, mannish sort of haircut in this movie. Interesting. And it's also evocative of, of Ripley's That's short what I hair. thought it was. It was yeah. reminiscent of her uh-huh. haircut. Side note, Catherine Waterston plays Chris Ann Brennan in the movie Steve Jobs, where Fassbender played Jobs. Chris Ann is the mother of his child that he kept denying was his child. The hippie. Yes. She wakes up and is immediately sent into turmoil because her husband is dying. Yeah, he's trapped in the pod and the damage is causing his pod to malfunction and it won't open until eventually the atmosphere inside catches fire and he burns up before he ever wakes up. Yeah. And that is devastating for her. That was who, James Franco. Yeah, who is her husband? It's James Franco. Weird. (laughs) He's the captain of the ship. He is the captain of the ship. And you find that out because she watches a video of him free climbing. Yes. And the dude behind him almost falling. (laughs) Yes. And I wrote down, I'm sorry, what, James Franco? (laughs) But we'll never see him again. No. And so now the, the second in command is going to become their leader. And that is... Billy Crudup, who plays Orem, is his name. I... I'm a golden god. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Billy Crudup is very much a golden god. <laughs> he is also Dr. Manhattan. Yes. I'm tired of the tangle of their lives. <laughs> so I'm going to go sit on Mars <laughs> and be zen. <laughs> anyway, his I assume his wife. It, it is his wife because she dies later. And that's yes. really sad for him. Spoilers. <laughs> yes, it's his wife. Is also on the crew. Yeah. And she comes to him and she's like, okay, they need a leader. They are now your crew. So you can't you can't be afraid of this. But I don't know if it's this conversation or later. She says, you also have to remember you're walking this sort of tightrope because we are a colony ship. 
When we get to where we're going, we're going to be setting up a colony and you're not going to be their captain anymore. You're going to be their neighbor. Mm -hmm. So also keep that in mind. Don't be a total dickhead. Mm -hmm. So they are discussing what they need to do, what they need to get done. And he's making them do all these checks. And I think it's I think Walter is just like. Well, we don't need to do those checks. Like, this was a totally random event. Yeah, find out how this happened. He's like, what are you talking about? It was random. Yeah, and Crudup kind of is just like, I wasn't awake. So I don't know what happened. Right. And it's like, I I mean, like, we know enough that, like, you know, synthetics are not always great in this world. But not uh, no, most people haven't had the encounters that Ripley has had. Uh-huh. So it seems oddly aggressive. However, we do also know that he's a man of faith. He's like the only one on the crew that is. Yeah, so that might also, he doesn't like artificial intelligence maybe because of that. Maybe, yeah. But he believes in in several things he lists off and faith is one of them and the other one is like being prepared. And so he doesn't want to just say, oh, it was random, we can't have known. He's like, research it, find out. And he also gives us assignments to all the crew. So Tennessee, who is Danny McBride, he's got to go outside and fix the the light sails. And Daniels has got to repair something. There's damage to the to the uh, the something in the loading bay or whatever. I'm sure. And Walter offers to help her because she is obviously devastated. Her husband just died, and so he's like. I can help you if you want. And she nods. And Billy Crudup tells them that they're not going to do anything to commemorate their captain because they don't have time to. Our first priority is to get everything fixed. Which, of course, they ignore. He doesn't even say, we will absolutely get this fixed and then we will have. He doesn't even say that. He just says, no, you're doing this because I told you to. And so, of course... They he watches them on a camera later as they take a shot to their captain's memory. Yes. It's like they're not listening to me. And that's when his wife's like, dude, <laughs> cool it. <laughs> so while Daniels is alone with Walter, she confides in him about the fact that her husband was very excited for them to go to this place because as we talked about in our last segment. They knew the entire planet, and they uh-huh. already knew exactly where everything was going to go. Uh-huh. And he wanted to build a cabin next to a lake. That was his dream, and they were going to build it together. That's why she ties a nail, one of the nails they were going to use. They had all the lumber and all the materials to build a cabin. She takes one of the nails and ties it around a string and then keeps it around her neck. Yeah, and, and she's just like, I don't have a clue how to do any of this. He was going to be the leader here like Mm -hmm. what am i gonna do now and walter is like you're gonna build the cabin because you promised you would yeah it's very cute it is very cute and you know that walter will help her they don't say that here but you know walter will Mm -hmm. so as chris said they're all gonna get together to have a shot which is when i wrote why is danny mcbride in this movie (laughs) (laughs) that seems random he does a fine job Mm mm-hmm I mean, it's a small role, but he, he said he was job. excited that he finally got an opportunity to have like a straight role where, yeah, he's a little silly, but he's he's not there for comic relief. He has a serious role to play. OK, so once they get everything fixed up, they start to have interference over the comms and we will hear Numi Rapace 
singing Country Roads by John Denver. I know this is everyone's favorite song because <laughs> of the trailer, and all the kids were singing it for two years until it was no longer cool. I get that. And it was very big at this moment The in Fallout time. 76 trailer is what she's talking about. Yes. All the kids at her school were singing this song when that trailer came out. Yes. And look, the song is good. I don't have anything against the fucking song. I do have a problem with the fact that not just one person, but multiple people know this song in 2104 or whatever right. the fuck year it is. Yeah, how Numi Rapace knows the lyrics to this song. Why she's singing it? Yeah. Why that was released into the nether? I don't understand. So, yeah, it's never explained why they get this interference of this message. Unless David intended that to happen. That's never explained if yeah. David had anything to do with this. But it's it just seems to be a candid recording of her as she's piloting the ship, the engineer ship, her singing Country Roads. Now, it was supposed to be in the script a prayer, and they thought that was kind of hokey. So well, in they the made first film, she instead. struggled with her with her religion, and then at the end of the film, she lets go of her religion yeah. because she realizes that in this universe, it doesn't exist. So instead, she, it's like when she's flying out there on the engineer ship, it's like she's on a road trip, and so she's singing Country Road. Dumb. Yeah. Dumb. It had to have been something better. I mean, it could have been... I guess it's just frustrating, because it's just like, I get it. What are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to make some new song? I understand. But why have the, it be that at all? And... If you're not, and if it's nothing, then why not have it be like her being like, hey, everybody, just seeing if anybody's out there, something. Well, the good, the good news is, is that when they're listening to this recording, only a couple of them, like, vaguely know it. They're like, what? I, I feel like I know that song. Well, and it's then Tennessee Danny says, who yes, sings it. He, but he's the only one who actually knows what it is. So it's not like everyone knows John Denver or something like that. It happens to be, you know, the cowboy who wears a cowboy hat that knows it. So it makes a little bit more sense there that not everyone knows it. And those that do only know it vaguely. And the only one that absolutely knows it is the one who has this hard on for the West. Exactly. And like, okay, what can we compare it to? We can compare it to, say, classical music, uh -huh. I suppose. But... Even that, I mean, is that... I'm so bad at death. How far in the future is this? From now? Uh-huh. This is like 80 years in the future. Oh, that's it? Yeah. Oh. It's still surprising, but whatever. Okay. But also, just never explained why it's there, who sent it out, what it was for, none of that. Anyway, because of this, everyone who's awake is like, well, why don't we check out this planet? Because this planet seems pretty awesome. Yeah, this is where the transmission is coming from. And look at it. It's a... I'm going to use the term Class M planet. I, that's not the term they use <laughs> in the movie. But the point is it can sustain life. It has like a 98 point something G gravity. So it's a little bit lighter than Earth, but hella close. And it's actually more... It's actually better for supporting human life than the planet they were actually headed to, which they wouldn't get to for another, what was it, seven years? Yes, they had seven more years left, as opposed to this planet, which is only a few weeks away, which mm -hmm. would mean that they wouldn't have to go into cryosleep, which is what they don't want to do. And Orem is like, well, we, we should maybe check it out. Any 
problems with that to the crew. And Daniels does have a problem with it. She's like, this is way too good to be true. We don't know what's there because we haven't surveyed the planet yeah. like we do uh-huh. before we go. Uh-huh. But also, she For, points before, out- Before colonists go, not yeah. before terraformers go. I'm just saying. So- <laughs> She points out something that also just doesn't make sense. She points this out, and then the film's like, nah, fuck that. We're just not going to talk about it. She says, why didn't we see this planet before? I don't know, movie. Why didn't you see this planet before? It's hard to know what's all the way out there. And it was off their original path. It must have been hiding behind something else when they did their scans. Who knows? We find new planets all the time. But the point is that Orm makes is that, listen... It's, what, a couple weeks off the path? We get there, we find nothing, we move on. But there is a human transmission coming from this planet. It is our duty to check it out. Well, she's, it reminds him it's also your duty to take care of the tons exactly. of colonists who are asleep right now. And she says, I officially have to record my, my disagreement. Protest. Yeah, my protest. That's your second I need to protest. Officially. Officially. Okay, Danny, I'll put it in the lock. Well, they go, they get there, and there's just an awful storm, just immediately. But, you know, fuck it. Who cares about omens, right? Yeah. <laughs> Let's just go. So they do, and they get through the storm, even though it's hard. And they get there, and it's like, oh, but look, it's so beautiful. It's a paradise. They're walking around, and... Billy Crudup goes to her and he's like, see, Daniels, look how beautiful this place is. And she's like, you're right. My husband would have loved this, but I'm still concerned. Yeah. And he's just like, oh, ye of little faith. Uh huh. But she also notices, excuse me, but there is cultivated human vegetation here. Lope is the one that finds that, who is there. I want to say head of security. I think that's the plan is that he becomes the head of security when they actually get to the colony, but he's like the head of the military part of this crew. And this is Damien Bashir, who we know as Father Burke from The Nun. Really? Yeah. How funny. He was also Bob in The Hateful Eight. Interestingly, we'll find out later that Lope is gay. Yes. That's random. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's like, hey, you know what? This is the future. He's the military dude, and he's gay and totally fine with it. And his... Partner or husband, we don't know, is actually on the crew. Yes. They're going there to live together. Yes. And again, you won't find that out until really sad circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> but so, of course, the immediate question is, so who planted it? Yeah. Just like the immediate question is, who's laying the eggs? Yes. They'll find out. <laughs> Daniels dis- Daniels realizes there's no birds, there's no animals, this is weird. And meanwhile, some other people are doing, they're getting samples of stuff. Yeah. And this guy pretends like he has to pee, but really he just wants to go and have a cigarette. And while he's walking away, he steps on one of those plants. It's like a fungus that releases a spore. Spores. But you'll notice that those, the, the fungi look reminiscent of the same stuff they the took in, the, in Prometheus. Yeah. Okay. So yes, but that's not what I was talking about. I was talking about the fungus that releases the spore looks vaguely like the eggs that the face huggers come in. Mm. And then it spits out this airborne spore, which is effectively 
the oil from Prometheus. This stuff is manufactured and can take multiple forms. There's the thick sludge oil and there's the spore. We'll find out later that the engineers actually engineered the spore. Why would they have it all over their planet? Because he dropped the spore bombs on their own planet. Ah, thank you. Forgot about that. Now, apparently, I I can't confirm it since I I haven't read the original script for Alien 3, but William Gibson famously wrote the first script to Alien 3, and this comes from that, apparently. So they referenced material that they didn't end up using for Alien 3 in this movie. Interesting. William Gibson, who famously wrote Neuromancer. I don't know what that is. Neuromancer is very seminal in creating the the subgenre of cyberpunk, but he also wrote Johnny Mnemonic. The Keanu movie? Yes, it's based on a short story of his. Oh. Yeah. Never seen it. Which is also kind of cyberpunk. I can't believe you've never seen Johnny Mnemonic. It had that cool, what was it, an orange VHS or something like that? It was some different color, which, man, if you spent the money to do that, you know the movie's good. There's a psychic dolphin in it. <laughs> we should watch Johnny Mnemonic. Not for the show, but we should watch it. <laughs> but so, yes, and that stuff goes into his ear. Meanwhile, elsewhere, they're just, they're doing surveying shit. This guy looks at a plant and he's like, this is weird looking. Let me just poke at it a little Uh bit. And he just inhales the shit that comes out Uh of it without even considering, hmm. So, okay, I wrote down, oh, right. I totally forgot that everyone fucking loses it in this movie. And that all you have to do to enjoy this movie is stop expecting anyone to behave rationally. Just like in Prometheus, mm-hmm. right? There's a moment later where somebody like, why would he do this? Which we can provide some additional insight from Ridley Scott for that moment. So we'll reserve that till we get there. But yes, people do stupid shit and then they just lose their goddamn minds. <laughs> so the first one is not doing too hot, but claiming to be fine. So they find Dr. Elizabeth Shaw's do- dog tags. And Walter knows who she is. And that she was missing. Her ship never came back like 10 years ago. But I think, I think 10 we find out ago. it's 11 years ago. Mm. And of course, Daniel's first question is, how did she end up here? Right. <laughs> All these very simple questions that, yes, would be the first thing that would pop into your mind. Those first two people, the one, who, the first one who gets sick, she's like, uh, guys, because everybody else has gone on further than they have. Yeah, and the she is Orem's wife. Yes. Crudup's wife. Yes. And she goes back and she says Ledward, which is the name of her colleague. She says, Ledward is sick, so we're headed back. Who does she say that to, Kelsey? Do you remember her name? Oh, I thought she told Crudup. Well, she does, but she tells Ferris on the dropship, who's the pilot of the dropship, and who's like, you know, making sure everything's in ship shape and all of that, is Tennessee's wife. Mm-hmm. Played by Amy Simons. Or Simons? I don't know. Rachel from the Pet Cemetery remake. The wife? Really? Yes. That's the same person? Uh-huh. That's nuts. She looks different. So, Crudup's wife is taking Ledward back to the ship, and on their way there, he vomits up some blood. And Tennessee's wife is just trying to help, trying to get him into the ship, trying to get his stuff into the ship, and... 
Crudup's wife is like, don't touch anything. Yeah, so she is like halfway Ripley-minded here, where she's like, okay, this is bad. I want to help him. I'm going to let him on the ship, but this might be a contamination concern. Mm-hmm. So she gets him and Corinne, I think is her name, Crudup's wife, into the med bay of the drop ship and without telling them, locks them in. And of course, she's wondering if they both have it, but she's also wondering if she has it. She knows it's not right to leave her in there, but she's also terrified. So she takes the Ripley action, which is the right thing to do. She just fucks it up later. The other guy has had Edward. the chest, chest burst. It comes come out of out. his back. Oh, out of his back. Yeah, so time. it's like in a spinal column or something like that. It starts to grow, spikes come out of it, and then his back just bursts open, gets blood all over Corinne, and, and then this thing just flops out. Now, this version of the chest burster has what amounts to an amniotic sac. Whereas yeah. in the original, it's not. So this mm-hmm. is one key indicator that it's not quite the xenomorph that we know it to be. So there's like the protomorph, I think is what they call it in Prometheus. And the neomorph is what they call it here. There's like various stages of evolution. The protomorph is the one that looks like the gob- the goblin shark where its whole jaw comes out of its face. And then this one actually has the little mouth inside of it. So it's further evolved. And it, uh, yeah, it comes out of Ledward's back and freaks out Corinne, obviously. And so. Who has a knife and it comes at her and like she doesn't use the knife and it really bothers She tries, me. but it, it jumps way too quickly. Oh, this is the other thing that's different. When they come out, when the chestbursters come out, they're a little bit more fully formed. They have all their limbs and everything and they can, they're not just, you know, effectively worms that run around like they're just smaller, fully formed xenomorphs. Yes. And so it just jumps on her immediately and she doesn't even have time to slash at it, but she tries. Ferris goes and gets a shotgun, I want to say, from the armory section right by the bay door and tries then goes to, to the med bay. Goes to the med bay. Yes, tries to save her. But in doing so, the thing escapes. Yeah. And so she's trying to... Ferris is dead. She's trying to kill it. And accidentally explodes the ship. Yes. As the rest of the crew is coming back with the other dude who got infected, they're like, ah, clear the med bay. (laughs) And then, boom, it blows up right in front of them. Yes. And Orem loses his mind because his wife just died. Yes. Everyone's spouse dies in this movie. And meanwhile, the other guy who was infected is now going through the same thing. Yes. And And his gets out. And this is when we see that he had his husband with him, and then we see that yeah, his because, husband died. So what will happen is it's getting dark. This thing gets out and it runs away. And then later on at night, they get attacked by a larger version of this. Actually, a couple of them. Well, before it runs away, it eats Walter's arm. Hand, yeah. He, he protects Daniel's. Yes. And sacrifices his hand for her. And it also takes off some other crew member's jaw. Yes. Like it swipes at his jaw and just takes it off. Yes. And in this kerfuffle is when Lope's husband or partner dies. Mm-hmm. And it's really sad. You like Lope. Yeah. So all these people are dying and all this chaos is happening. And we're starting to see that there's probably more than just that one. And then poof, a flashbang goes off. Yes. And it lights up. 
everything. It's like halfway between a flash grenade and an emergency flare. Like it goes up into the air, ignites the sky, and then comes down with a blinding light. Mm -hmm. And the xenomorphs or the neomorphs run away. And there's this man in a hood who tells them to follow him. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, where have you been all this time? Watching them. Exactly. Not helping. Watching. Yeah. Nobody asks. Exactly. So he takes them to what looks like a necropolis because there's tons of dead people everywhere, like frozen in place. And what we will find out is that David flew the engineer ship here. And then where is Shaw? We don't know. We do know she's not dead yet at this point releases all of the ammunition that was on this engineer ship and kills all the engineers here. Now we see that. Does he tell them he did that? I don't think so. I think it's a moment where he looks out over the necropolis and then he just remembers that. Exactly. So they don't ask what happened. Yes. They're like, this is fucking creepy. I think he might tell them that it was like it when it it was like this when I got here. I, I don't remember. But yeah, so they don't ask, they don't, they're they're weirded out by it, but like, they're not really curious. What we haven't talked about is that there's this big storm around them that they're kind of sitting in the eye of it, that, and so it's like raining on them, but it's not really storming where they are. But it's so big, and it covers so much of the planet, that the ship, or one of their extra ships, or another drop ship, can't get close enough to even communicate with them really or pick them back up so they're kind of stuck there while this storm is happening we'll find out later that it could last all night days weeks months we don't know and let's just talk a little bit about why we think he killed all these aliens right because it's almost like okay is it revenge for the humans he doesn't care about the humans mm-hmm. he's curious wouldn't he be curious about i mean i imagine he'd be worried maybe that they do what the last one he encountered did, which is rip off his head, become violently aggressive, and he knows that's going to happen, so he kills them all first? Yes. I had actually totally forgotten that happened until just now. <laughs> I had a theory, and I'm like, oh, no. He just hates them because one of them ripped his head off. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no fucking shit. Okay, never mind. David tells the crew that Shaw died in a crash when they landed. They immediately tell him that they've got a whole cargo ship full of colonists, which just was a mistake. But of course they were going to tell him that. Yeah, and now he's like, oh. Right. Oh. (laughs) We don't yet know why he'd be interested in that, but he is interested. And he says to Walter, welcome, brother. And he immediately, when he gets back to his home, cuts his hair to look just like Walter. Yeah, if you remember, he would emulate what's-his-face from Lawrence of Arabia, dye his hair blonde originally. But he's Which been on this planet for so long that his hair grows out. Right, but why is his hair still blonde? It's not. It's not? Well, he has, like, this light brownness to it, okay. but it's not blonde. Because okay. he, he peroxides his hair mm-hmm. in, in Prometheus. But yeah, so he had let all of his hair grow out. And he cuts it to look just like Walter, which yeah. is just immediately, that's not a good sign. It, it's it's the length of Walter's, but you can still tell them apart visually at this point. They have their hair combed in different ways. Well, at this point, 
One of them has an arm and one doesn't. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Can you tell that this is going to be a factor later on in the movie? Well, they told you it's going to, I mean, it, putting, having him cut his hair that way uh-huh. just should have immediately told you well, I there's think, going to be a problem. I think it can be presented ostensibly as him cleaning up now that he's around humans again and not wanting to look disheveled, wanting to look superior, wanting to look neat and composed. David teaches Walter how to play the flute and he's trying to have a moment with Walter. And David asks him about, wow, you knew Waylon. What was our creator like? <laughs> and David's like, he was a human. I pitied him in the end. Yeah. And I think David wants Walter to kind of make his own song on the flute or something. And Walter says, I can't. I can't create anything. And David's like, exactly. They don't want you to have that ability. That's one of the features that they took out. Curiosity emotion, creativity, and his English accent. Walter says, you were too human and made people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So David goes, okay, so they made you more like a machine. Mm -hmm. Walter's like, yeah, that's that makes sense. Yeah, no, Walter doesn't question it. He doesn't have the capacity to. So now that his wife is dead, Crudup is like, you were right about this place. We should never have come he, here. He, he becomes Gorum. Uh-huh. He becomes Gorum, basically. That's what I'm saying. Everyone loses their fucking minds and makes really bad decisions because, like, their wives died. Sure. But, like, everyone. <laughs> and Daniel says to him, we need your faith, Captain. Yeah. We need you to lead us here. Meanwhile, Walter and David are still having their moment. And David will recite the Osmandius poem. Yes. Which, before we get into the details of the plot, he is looking out over the necropolis, the courtyard full of dead bodies, as Walter comes up behind him and he recites Ozymandias, you know, look on my works, ye mighty in despair. And David, I think, understands the danger here. He knows that something's wrong with David, not just because of a mistake that David's going to make here. But also because it's almost like David is reciting it with reverence. Like he is Ozymandias and he does see what he's done as great works. When every high schooler who's ever been forced to read the poem knows that it's about the fleeting passage of time and how even the greatest of men will be consigned to be forgotten and... That's what time does to us all. You know, Ozymandias is about a placard that's on the base of a statue where only the legs exist any longer in the middle of a desert where no society is. You know, and it says, look on my works, ye mighty in despair, as if he's some great king and nobody fucking knows who this guy is. That's the irony of Ozymandias. And David kind of gets it wrong here, not just in attributing the writer, but also in the purpose of the poem. And when Walter comes up and finishes, I think he finishes the poem for him. And then David says, Lord Byron. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, alone and level sand stretch far away. Byron. 
And Walter doesn't correct him. I think that's a clue into the fact that Walter is like an observer in this moment, and he's uncertain. And the fact that there's another robot who's gotten it wrong, this is a bad sign. Something's wrong with this robot. Walter recognizes that. Yeah. And David ends it by saying one could die happy having written something so majestic if one could die. Yeah. So again, it's like he wants to be human, but he doesn't want to be human. It's weird. He's happy about the fact that he doesn't die. It makes Uh him feel powerful. It makes him feel better than everyone else. But at the same time, he wishes he could be, he could write something so majestic. So I'm just going to say this now, actually. David says that it's Lord Byron. Walter will correct him. It's actually Percy Shelley. I don't know how to pronounce his middle name. Is it Bice, Bish? It's B-Y-S-S-H-E. I never, ever knew how to pronounce that. Extra interesting fact here is that Shelley's wife, Mary Shelley, is the one who wrote Frankenstein. What is Frankenstein's alternate title? Do you remember? The Modern Prometheus. And in that way, David is sort of the Frankenstein, the creation of Wayland, Dr. Frankenstein. You know, Frankenstein's monster, I guess, right? Get it right. Humanity is the Frankenstein's monster created by the Dr. Frankenstein of the engineers. And we'll find out later, these new neomorphs are the Frankenstein's monster of David's mm-hmm. Dr. Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And so there's this, all this, it's this creation and the differences between the creation and the creator and the ways that the creation is a step up and the, the limitations of those same creations. So like that's all around the theming of this movie and the previous one. As they will continue talking... David will mention Elizabeth Shaw, and he will say, I loved her, of course, to -hmm. which Walter will say, that's not possible. You don't, you can't love. And David's like, well, don't you love Daniels? Didn't you sacrifice your hand for her life? That's love. And what does he say? What does Walter say? It was my duty. Yes. And I would argue that duty is love. If you feel a sense of duty to something, whether that's to your country as a soldier or whatever, that that, that's because you love that thing. Otherwise, it's not duty. If you're doing it for a paycheck or you're doing it because you'll be put in jail, that's not duty that you feel. You don't feel that sense of duty. Well, couldn't you argue that his programming forces him to do it? I don't think he sees it that way, though. Doesn't matter how he I sees think it's it. A, well, it does. It's a rose by a different name. He calls it duty, and I would argue that duty is love. But I would argue that that duty is programming. Yes. But now we're getting into the philosophy of AI, and when is AI real life, and when well, does it feel exactly real That's exactly what they're talking about. A- ex- exactly. But if they can feel duty, then they can feel love, is my point. But I don't know that he feels it. Or so much as he is programmed to do it. Right, but we my point is... We talked about this a lot when we watched that show, Wild West show. Westworld? We talked about this a lot. Mm-hmm. She doesn't actually feel shit for her daughter. It's, it's not programmed into her a head. real emotion. Until it is. But it's not because it was in her programming. I and understand. they try to explain that so many times. I understand, but I think you're missing the next step, which is that all that a processor that's 
programmed with, you know, code to respond to certain stimuli, that is the exact same thing as the neurons firing in your brain. You are just programmed to feel that way. There's just more plasticity in the human brain than there is in current AIs. That's the only difference. So what I'm saying is the fact that he chose to say duty because he did have a choice there and not it was in my programming. I didn't have a choice. Well, I don't think that they're programmed to think that way. And as you need to play Mass Effect, there's a great moment in Mass Effect where you need to decide if you let a species of AI live or not. Okay, I'm not all about let's just kill them because they're machines. That's what it sounds like. If I had a maid that was a robot, I would still be nice to it. But that's just me. (laughs) Uh But like bringing up the idea that a human is programmed to feel things. The difference is a robot is programmed its duty to you no matter how you treat it. That's the difference. They don't get to make the choice of... I don't like you, and, and there therefore is, I'm not going to save you. <laughs> and there is a difference between... In, and humans can. No, no. A human can say, oh, fuck that guy. Unless you program them not to. Through manipulation? That's totally different. Or, or intimidation long enough. Right, absolutely. You can program people to do things. That's. I'm not saying that you can't. I'm saying that... Nothing has to happen to a robot for them to be this way. Well, the point is, is that David is the way he is because he learned to be that way. He changed his curiosity, which we he was allowed, allowed him to change his programming. Which is why they changed it. Yes, when I they understand. I understand that there is a difference between David and Walter, but I think Walter does have the capacity to respond to novel stimuli in a way that he is not immediately programmed to. If he sees something that he has never seen before and that has never been programmed into him, he will respond. He, In order to support that, he needs to be able to think on his own to some degree. Absolutely. And again, they bring that up in the Wild West show. Westworld, you can you, say. That. Do you remember when they showed, they were like, Here's how it works. Mm-hmm. We give them a set of responses yeah. based on different interactions. Then they do this, 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 this. Yeah. And, you, and they showed all these different ways. And Until they were you like, make it so complex. But, and they explain that. And they explain, we have built into the program to constantly be flexible to different situations and scenarios. Yeah, but the more flexible you make them, and this is how so much of sci-fi literature is based around this. Until you you make it so complex that there is no definable difference between that AI and actual consciousness. Again, I am not the type of person that if I had a robot, I would just treat it like shit just because I could. I would not do that. And I would not condone other people to do that. But at the end of the day, if it came down to a human or a fucking robot, I would pick Mm -hmm. the human. But there are other humans that died that he didn't protect. He couldn't have in the moment, I don't think. He, he, he He's a robot. He's not magic. <laughs> right, but he didn't help anyone else. He recognized the emotions in Daniels and helped her with her task. He provided her with inspiration. Is that part of his programming? Like To be kind and courteous and care. And recognize things that aren't explicitly said to him and respond in a way that would cheer them up. Again, this is all stuff that... I. If I lived in this world, I would imagine that we'd be programmed to do this stuff. Right. 
I'm not arguing that they're not programmed to. What I'm arguing is, is that in order to respond, and, and not every single time you respond to a scenario with error does not compute, like because he doesn't respond to any situation like that, we know that he has some sort of programming in him to respond independently and make choices. So we know he is a decision-making intelligence. And in order to make decisions independently of your programming, that reflects personhood. Yes. But but yes, he is not as much of a person as David is. And David kind of goes crazy as a result of that. It's a whole philosophical thing. There is no right answer to this, by the way. But it's fun to think about, I think. Meanwhile, another female crew member dies. Yeah, while she's cleaning her wound at a fountain, she got hit with some acid blood. Yes. And so she's cleaning her wound on a fountain. We find out that they have artificial skin, like bandages. And then she gets attacked by this towering xenomorph. Yes. Which is kind of pale. Yes. And David and Crudup come upon it. Well, David shows up first mm-hmm. and blows in its face as it's like panting heavily and stops and calms down. And Crudup comes up behind him and puts his bead on it, his laser sight. And David's like, no, 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 no. It's calm. Watch, just blow in its face, you know, it'll be fine. And Crudup's like, fuck that, because he sees the head in the fountain of his crew member. Mm-hmm. And so he opens fire on it, and this is the moment when David wails. Yes. No! You have to earn its respect. No! He's like, it trusted me. Uh-huh. But... That's like some... I don't think that can just be chalked up to this is my creation thing that I created and now I have one fewer and that equals bad. There's emotion here. I think there's, again, I think it's more just anger at Crudup. Right, but also it trusted me is his response. He feels guilt. Otherwise, why would he say that? Oh, no, I don't think he feels guilt at all. I think when he says it trusted me, He's upset because I could have had a new I've, pet. I've trained it this far, and now I went through all that work to get it to trust me. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I had one. I was close, you asshole. Yeah. Because I get the impression that they are not easy to train. And so David <laughs> makes a decision here, and he decides that uh, effectively – he gonna kill Crudup. Yeah. <laughs> Crudup's like, you're gonna tell me what's going on. And David's just like, sure. Yep. <laughs> All right. All right, I will. So, David, you're gonna tell me exactly what's going on. Or I am going to seriously fuck up your perfect composure. As you wish, Captain. So... He takes him into his room, and he's like, I'm an amateur zoologist. <laughs> and Crudup does not realize quickly enough. He doesn't see everything. We find out later that in one of these lab rooms, Shaw is dead in one of these lab rooms. laying there. Completely spliced open as if a chestburster had come out of her. And it doesn't make a lot of sense, because if it's been ten years, wouldn't she be, like, decayed? Yeah, I don't know if he was keeping her... We don't know exactly when she died. It's future We man. don't know how he's taking care of her. Science. Yeah, exactly. Future science. Um, Daniels will come across this body later, but he he doesn't. But still, you you can see that David has 
tons of specimens. Yeah, it's like a medieval laboratory yes. with a bunch of scrolls and drawings and specimens laid out and pinned as if they're butterflies. Well, he's working with what he has. Yeah. Although, where is he getting all the scrolls and the pins right, from? Yeah. I don't know. Well, maybe, maybe the engineers have yeah, maybe the materials. Engineers had plenty of it. I maybe don't he know. uses the wheat in some way. I don't know. Where did he get the wheat seeds from? How did he cultivate those? Oh, I don't think he was doing that. I think the people were doing that. But it's earth wheat is the point. The engineers. Are, so are are you suggesting that our wheat came from the engineers? Is that I what you're saying? I assume so. Interesting. Okay. They terraform, right? They would eat the stuff yeah. and become part of the earth, right? Right, but our wheat became the way it is over, you know, centuries. Not according to alien <laughs> Science. I guess, yes. Alien gets things wrong <laughs> all the time, especially in this new series. He explains that he has been breeding and crossbreeding them, and still the captain's not freaking out. I think he's mesmerized at this point. There's a lot of information. He doesn't know what to do with it, and he's trying to be ready. Right. So he's like, come and see my successes. So he takes him into another room, and he says, they're waiting. Yeah. And what's waiting there? An egg, and which opens up and Crudup's like, whoa, Jesus. Yeah, he says, for like, what? Don't, it's perfectly safe. Yeah, he says he's waiting for mother. Perfectly safe, I assure you. Take a look. And so Crudup looks into the egg. And you might be wondering, only an idiot would stick his head over that open egg. That is the, those are the words of Ridley Scott. He said, only an idiot would stick his head over that open egg in an interview. But John Hurt did so we have to revisit it. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> I thought that was really interesting. He's like, oh, well, we were trying to mirror the moment in Alien when John I Hurt looks over it. I suppose. <laughs> but there's a big distinction here. Yes, because that was just in this crash and everything seemed dead and all of a sudden something's moving and he's like, what's going on? Is what John Hurt did. Mm -hmm. In this, there's someone he knows is dangerous and he does not trust. He's seen... Multiple people die uh -huh. on this trip. Yep. And he's just like, hey, what's this? I'm going to put my face into it. Do, do, yep. do, do. I am a golden god. <laughs> Billy Crudup. <laughs> but so Crudup asks him, what do you believe in, David? Right when he's looking in. Mm -hmm. And when the thing attacks, David says creation. Mm -hmm. Here we are. There's that theme of creation again. Yes. And then, well, there's Elizabeth is what my notes say. <laughs> Shaw. Yeah. This is where Daniel sees her. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So somebody commented, and I thought it was pretty interesting that in the first one, we're talking about birth and creation, being able to give birth to new life is like a whole theme of this prequel trilogy, just like motherhood was to aliens. But Shaw always wanted kids and she couldn't have kids. And that was the irony that... I her, can't create. Her boyfriend or husband impregnated her. Anybody can can have a baby. I can't. Yes, exactly. But that horrible, stupid moment. <laughs> but now we find he out. He was being insensitive. He was. Thank you. But she was being willfully <laughs> confrontational about it. <laughs> uh, anyway, this is another time where she was impregnated and this time finally gave birth to it. Somebody said that that was ironic. I thought that was pretty interesting. Not by choice. Not by choice, yes. So, right after he's had the facehugger attack the captain, I suppose Walter shows up at this point because David tells him, I was not made to serve. 
and neither were you. Those people are a dying species. To which Walter will say, they created us. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you have to have respect. And this is when he brings up the fact that who even wrote Osmandius? And he doesn't know the correct answer. Yeah, he says Byron, and that's when Walter corrects him. No, it was Shelley. Yeah. Like, you're, you're broken. Your thoughts are fucked at this point. You should not trust them. He's and trying to, like, appeal to him. Like, hey, you know, you're malfunctioning. Recognize that. Mm-hmm. And what does David do? He kisses him, and then he stabs him in the neck. Yes. And it's so obvious that, like, it's not him in this scene. Yeah, when it's they're trying to do the over-the-shoulders. Yeah, and it's awkwardly shot. And Walter is intentionally a little bit taller, too. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh-huh. Why? I don't know. Because I certainly didn't notice. I mean, Fassbender's naturally short, so I'm not surprised that he Aww. would be shorter. He's pretty short. You know what? He got a big dick, so it don't matter. <laughs> he makes up for it. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, like, you know, yeah, he's he's short. Let me find out exactly how short he is real quick. He's not really. He's like, I think he's almost six foot tall. What? <laughs> but there's a lot of tall people that he's cast against. And so he looks like, and if you see him stand, he's kind of stocky. It's weird. Like his, his proportions are kind of bizarre. Yes. He's a very attractive man. Fassbender is a gorgeous man. Yes. <laughs> it was from the back. We'll never really know. It looked big. Yeah. He's like an inch shorter than I am. And I'm six foot tall. So like, is, is, he, is he Tom Cruise short? No. But, you know, for an action star, but yes, Would he- Would we call him an action star? He's in the X-Men movies. Yeah, but Magneto's not, he doesn't play him action-y, he's very- Uh-huh. <laughs> he's a posh villain. What's that line from the X-Men arcade game? Welcome to die. And Magneto says it's awesome. <laughs> Like I so, don't think that, yeah. that I don't think that Magneto would ever get his hands dirty. So <laughs> he stabs Walter in the neck, shutting him down. And as he walks away, we see that the neck hole it's leaking that milk seals itself. What is with every thing wanting robots to be made with milk? Probably comes from Alien when Ash is there's milk everywhere. You think it was that one first? I, th I think it's supposed to be a nutrient sludge and... But they also did it in Westworld. Well, they're they're created in that milky stuff. Hold right, on. but don't you think there's an odd coincidence going on here? I mean, the only... The only movie that really gets it right is Terminator. Okay. They wouldn't bleed at all. We just, you know, it's just skin over over. Right, but these ones, they eat, they drink, they're they're part like biological. They eat and drink. They don't have to though. But they can, yeah. So like, there's a biology to them, mm -hmm. and it's a lubricant, and you know, I'm sure it has something to do with how they get their power. I don't know. I haven't read up on the insides of robots in the Alien franchise. <laughs> David kisses Walter here in this moment, right before he stabs him. 
And he also asks Walter if he has any dreams, which do androids dream of electric sheep, which is the book that Blade Runner is based on. Mm-hmm. When Batty, the lead replicant in Blade Runner, kills Tyrell, he kisses him. And there's another moment coming up here that we're not to yet, and I'll call it out when we get there. But his response is, I don't dream at all. Mm-hmm. So at this point in the rest of this necropolis, the xenomorphs are running rampant and they're killing soldiers. Lope is alive. Catherine's alive. Catherine stumbles upon the laboratory and finds Shaw dead. You realize, oh, he killed her. And she sees all the scrolls and everything like that. And oh, my God, David's a murderer. He's controlling these xenomorphs. Well, what the fuck? And she confronts him. And they end up getting in a fight and he grabs her and is going to kill her. But she stabs him up underneath the chin with the nail that she has around her neck. And he lets go of her and she runs away. And he responds to this by saying, that's the spirit, Mm -hmm. which is the same thing that Batty says to Deckard when he starts beating him with a pipe. Batty just keeps getting hit with this with this pipe. And he's like, that's the spirit. Mm -hmm. So another reference to Blade Runner. Ah. That's the spirit. But yes, they are fighting. And as they are fighting. In comes Walter. Yes. And you're so excited. You're so fucking excited. And he tells him. There have been a few updates since your day. So fucking cool. And now we have David who has his nail hanging from his chin and is a slightly shorter against Walter who's missing a hand. Yes. And he tells Catherine, Walter tells Catherine to run and she leaves. And, and. By this point, we haven't been talking about how Tennessee has been like, we got to get down there. He gets as close as he can to the storm, risking the entire colony on board in cryosleep. Catherine ends up Daniels. I call her Catherine because that's her real name. Daniels ends up telling him that he can take the, they have like this loader, which can fly, but it's this big flat platform, which carries machinery down and has a big crane on it. And so that's what Tennessee gets in to come pick them up. Tennessee, who is super mad now because his wife was killed. But handles it like a champ. Yes. And so Lope and Daniels go to Tennessee, who's brought this ship down as this whole place is getting overrun and Walter and David are fighting. Now, what they don't see, but we do, is that Walter and David continue to fight until ultimately Walter overpowers David and is on top of him. What does David say to Walter in this moment? Like, it's your choice, something like that? So Walter has the upper hand. I'm not sure what Walter says, but David says... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. David says something to Walter. Would you rather serve in heaven or reign in hell? And as he's saying that, he's reaching for a dagger... And we get a cut and we don't see what happens. Yes. Next thing we know as Lope, who's all acided up on his face and Daniels are running towards this loader, running towards this flying platform that Tennessee is piloting, out comes Walter. We know it's Walter because his hand is missing. One thing you should notice, though, is that he is pretty banged up. And we know that Walter's model heals itself. The skin does. Mm. 
So in all the hullabaloo, they don't notice this and they get on. But then as they're trying to get away, this giant flat platform is trying to fly away, but it's really difficult because the atmosphere isn't great. And then one of the Neomorphs like jumps on and we get to see it right close up. It's the famous one. They put it in all the trailers. <laughs> By the way, this is the one that came from Orem, I think. Billy Crudup earlier because Catherine finds him later and his chest is burst open already. Mm hmm. And she's like, no, fuck this. And she goes outside with a gun and attaches herself to the crane. And we get some crane. unfortunate effects here. Some, yes. We get, to see, we get to see Tennessee firing the thrusters that burns the xenomorph just like in the original. And there's a fight. Ultimately, she grabs the crane controls and, and it grabs onto the xenomorph or the neomorph. And then... As she's dangling right next to it off the edge of this thing, and it can't handle the fact that the crane has moved because it's not supposed to be flying while the crane's in operation. So it's like all tilted and shit, and they don't, they're barely keeping this thing in the air. It's knocking down columns everywhere. She hits the button for to operate the crane, and it just crushes this alien and, you know, acid it's blood awesome. everywhere. It's, it's so a, it's cool. It's very, very cool. And then she ends up getting pulled back up, and David comes out to grab her. I say David. Walter David comes out to grab her. <laughs> so they're back on the ship and things have calmed down a little bit and they get Lope into his cryo chamber and and he has this big patch over his face because he got that acid on his face. And Tennessee comments, he looks like Phantom of the Opera, to which Daniel says, I didn't pay you for a musical fan. And Danny McBride says, that's a musical. Yes. Oh, there's a musical? I think he might be thinking of... The book. The movie? Like, from the 1920s? Or from, like, the early 2000s? That's also a musical? Oh, I guess that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there was another movie that came out. Right. Or people just know about the Phantom of the Opera from the zeitgeist, but they've never actually seen it. I suppose so. I guess it is a book. I guess he could have read it. We still read <laughs> Shakespeare, right? Right. Right. And hey... Uh, I buy into a world where the Phantom of the Opera never goes out of style. Yeah. I buy into that. <laughs> By the way, that wasn't that wasn't Daniels who said that. That was Upworth. Who's Upworth? She's the co-pilot to Tennessee's pilot. Oh. The one who's going to get murdered in a little bit. <laughs> With her husband, by the way. So yeah, everyone's all happy. And Upworth goes to have sex in a shower. With Ricks, Jesse Smollett, and while they're like all rubbing up on each other Again, in the shower. Again, just tons of people just died. Uh, we just encountered an alien. I can't think of a better time to, to celebrate life, Kelsey. That's right. That's right. Just like in the Matrix. <laughs> we, that's what you remember. You talked about that. When movie. people <laughs> celebrate life, it means we have sex because that's what humans uh -huh. do. That's what gave us the orgy rave in the Matrix. <laughs> yes. Anyway, there's a xenomorph and stabby stabby and kills all of them. Do we know how the xenomorph got on board? I would assume that David slash Walter brought it on. But how? Oh, it's Lope. Lope was infested. Oh, right. There's. Oh, I forgot. I forgot. There's this whole theory about face huggers. So Lope gets attacked. And he gets a face hugger on him and immediately someone cuts it off. And that's how he gets the acid on his face. Mm -hmm. And this face hugger dies like immediately. 
But it turns out that apparently face huggers impregnate immediately. And the reason they stay on you is to make sure that nothing happens and that it can gestate, not because it takes time to impregnate you. This is the first time we ever got the impression that impregnation happens as soon as they get their ovipositor down your throat. But I'm not an alien. <laughs> then I ram my ovipositor down your throat and lay my eggs in your chest. But I'm not an alien. <laughs> Whereas, you know, in all the other ones, face hugger, time, and then chest burster. This is immediately. So, yes, Lope was infested. He's in his tube and it in the med bay or whatever. And this is where this new xenomorph comes from. It kills Lope and then kills these two. And so now the only humans in the crew who are still alive are Tennessee and Daniels. And they have to fight against this xenomorph with Walter on their side. And we know this is David. I think it's very apparent that this is actually David. He's just watching out of curiosity. Again, he's just curious. Well, he does help them. He does. Yeah, they tell him to, and he needs to keep up his appearances. Mm -hmm. And so he, he helps does them what he yeah. expel it. Yeah. So what they do is they 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 herd it through the corridors by shutting off the doorways and stuff like that. Which There's is only fine. ever one solution: throw it out the airlock. Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> we also get the point of view of the alien here, which never should have happened. Mm -hmm. This is the movie I think where we get the closest to empathizing with them. Via David, who shows empathy towards them. I mean, they're just a creature. Like, right, it, right. They're not an evil being. We think of them as evil uh -huh. because it seems like they are to us. But they are smart. And so the smarter you are and still remain malicious, the more we equate that with evil. Right. But they are just a creature. Yes. And as far as we know about this creature, all they want to do is reproduce. Which might seem one-dimensional, but look around you. Yeah. Most animals just want to reproduce. <laughs> so they trap it in this hallway, and Daniels in Tennessee are in the terraforming bay, which is Daniels' home turf. And so they get in their spacewalker suits, and they tell Walter to open up the door and let it in. And when they do... Daniels gets its attention. The alien chases it. And she's like, oh, fuck, it's a lot faster than I thought it was. <laughs> and she climbs through this treaded vehicle, climbs through its cab, and it follows her. And it has a hard time muscling its way through. She's able to get to the other side and closes both doors where she says, I got you, you son of a bitch, which is from Alien. Mm -hmm. Then it starts to break out, smashing its head. On the window, and then its little teeny head inside of its mouth <laughs> comes popping straight through the window right at Daniel's face, right when she's bragging about how I got you. Mm -hmm. and she freaks out, and so she tells Tennessee to hit the winch and let it fly open. They open the pod bay doors, open the pod bay doors, Hal, and it starts to slide out, but then it gets tangled up in another chain with another truck, so they gotta let that one go. It's important that there are two vehicles. So she dives out and it climbs out on the top of this truck. And as it's flying out into space, it lunges at her and she drops down just as this other truck is coming from behind and it impales itself on the fork on this truck as it falls out into space. 
She also says, blow this fucker into space, which is a reference to another line that Ripley says. So they're all done. Finally, they're free. Three more people had to die. But Daniels puts Tennessee in his cryo chamber. Walter puts Daniels in her cryo chamber. And as he's plugging all the things in and it's closing on her, she asks him. Waits to ask until it's too fucking late. Yes. She's she's like, you know what? Let me ask before we wake up and we're there. When we get there, will you help me build my cabin? And he just kind of looks at her. The cabin on the lake. And she starts banging on the glass. No! <laughs> She's realized that this is actually David. And that he's cut off his own hand in order to impersonate Walter. Don't let the bed bugs bite. I'll tuck in the children. Honestly, I fucking love this bleak ending. Kelsey kind of hates it, I think. I hate it. It's such a downer ending. Yeah. I think it's inspired. Because far too many of these movies end with them getting into their cryo chambers and going to sleep and everything's fine. This one bucks that trend. It reminds me a little bit of Alien 3, which we'll get there, that has kind of a bleak ending. That Alien 4 completely backtracks on. So I like that they had this one that they're kind of going to have to commit to if they ever make another one of these. And then we see him go into the chamber that has all of the embryos embryos, and all of the adults in their in their cryopods. And he tells the computer to play Wagner again, uh, entering the, the hall of the Valhalla. king. Yeah, entering Valhalla. And so as it's playing, he opens up the the tray with the embryos and then he just <laughs> pulls out one of these sacks, these embryos of a face hugger, right? It's face huggers that are in there. Oh, I have no idea. I can't remember if it's, I think it's face huggers. Does it matter? It's aliens. Yeah. He's got two And he aliens. puts them in the embryo <laughs> container and closes that and that's how the movie ends. I hate that ending. Now he has access to all the experimental subjects he could possibly desire, which is so cool. They don't bother, I mean, obviously we don't ever get to find out because she's not in the movie and he says that she did it out of love for him, which makes no sense because she certainly did not love him at the end of the fun first film. Why did she put him back together in the fucking first place? Yeah, they she, never explained that. She brought him she with kind of, her because she needed him she needed to him. help him. Her. But she starts to trust him at the end. Not so much. It's and more at some point she's alone. She's in space. Like... You're going to put him back together. We don't know if they fucked. Does he have a penis? Does he have Fassbender's large penis? I don't know. Fully anatomical. If it can eat, I'm pretty sure it has a dick. <laughs> <laughs> Just like Data. In like the second episode of Next Generation, it's revealed that he can fuck. <laughs> From you, Data, you are fully functional, aren't you? Of course, but... How fully? In every way, of course. I am programmed in multiple techniques, a broad variety of pleasuring. Uh. So 
Here's the problem with this movie. There are two ways we get from here to Alien. One, David created the Xenomorph as we know it. Mm -hmm. Or two, David happened to recreate, by chance, the same exact or close to it circumstances that led to the creation of the Xenomorph as we know it. But his creation is not the same as the Xenomorphs that we meet in the original series. So one of those two things needs to happen because he creates xenomorphs. So either it's the xenomorph, well, it leads to the xenomorphs we know, or he just happens to create similar ones by chance. I think he. I, I mean, I mean, he doesn't create xenomorphs. They existed before. He, they existed in Prometheus. No, he has a series. They don't. We get the protomorph. Remember at the very end, he comes out. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it's the protomorph. It looks nothing like the xenomorph we know. Doesn't, Doesn't even have, have the long, same jaw. He has the long. Yeah, and it comes to a point in the end. It's not a <laughs> penis this time. Like it's not the same thing at all because it comes out of an engineer. But also the face huggers are different. The thing, the chest bursters are different. They're all different. And he cultivates this over a period of ten to eleven years, testing on subjects, whether it's like. The children of the engineers. He doesn't have any humans anymore. Um, and then he finally gets humans. And then we get these xenomorphs that we know. But he's already evolved them by this point. We can see in all of his drawings and everything like that. He's done work to get them to the way that they are right now. We also see that the ones that came from the engineers are slightly different than the protomorph that came out of the first engineer at the end of Prometheus. They're they're similar. They're white. They, they have different faces than the actual xenomorphs, but they're different. So he's made changes. He's cultivated the species. So either he managed to cultivate a species that looks a hell of a lot like the xenomorphs, but isn't the same thing, or he created them. There are problems with both scenarios. Scenario number one, he created the xenomorph as we know it. The engineers at the facility in Prometheus experienced a catastrophic event akin to Chernobyl, but they have a biological weapon instead of nuclear power. Practically all of them were wiped out. If any got away with a xenomorph on board, and that is what led to the derelict ship on LV-426 that we finally see in Alien, because we know it's an engineer ship, we know there's a space jockey, which we know is an engineer pilot. So somehow an engineer gets away with thousands of eggs on ship which we also know are not their delivery mechanism for these aliens. Because their delivery mechanism is the gas, Pause. the spores. The planet that Ripley goes to. LV-426. And the planet that uh, Numi Rapace went to. LV-224 or something like that. Different places. Okay. And that's also different from the planet that they've now, they're now on in Covenant. Yes. Three separate planets. Yes. Okay. The one from Prometheus is where they were developing it. Yes. And they were developing it away from home because they knew it was a dangerous thing. Yes. Okay. So they're developing it there. And we have absolutely no idea where the planet is that Ripley uh, found in, in where it is in, in relation, in relation yeah. to... The one that they found in Prometheus. Okay. Yeah, we do know they're part of this LV system or whatever. So. Yeah. It's very possible he was a defector. Mm -hmm. No, no. I'm not I mean, discounting there's, that. There's I'm not discounting of... that. That's scenario two, which I'm not at yet. Okay. If he left before this point mm -hmm. from LV223, 
which is where the military base of the engineers is where they were building the weapon. Mm -hmm. It had to have been before David. Because when David gets there, there's only one left alive and they kill it. Then he goes to the engineer's home planet, kills all the engineers there. There are no living engineers. So this engineer has to be pre-David. So David cannot have been responsible for the xenomorphs that are on the derelict ship that lands on LV-426. It is impossible. Because David meets one engineer who gets killed by the protomorph, and then he kills every other engineer he encounters. Well... Before he even meets any of them, he drops a bomb on their civilization. It's also possible that they lived on the other planets. Yes. We don't know enough about this society. Exactly. No, you're totally fine. My point is that theory one fits the theme of creation neatly. That David and his creation is what led to the xenomorph that we get for the rest of the Alien franchise. In interviews, Ridley Scott has referred to David as having created, in quotes, the xenomorph. Offhanded, he's responding to a, to a question. Somebody asks him, so why did David create the xenomorph? And he answers something along the lines of, he was curious, he wanted to create like his father had created. Confirming the fact that David created the xenomorph in his mind. Why do you, why did you make me? Because we could. Yeah. That's what the dude says in, Yeah. In the novelization and early drafts of the script, the engineers create the xenomorph first, as we know it. Which is weird, because the xenomorph we see on that planet isn't the same one. But David tries intentionally to replicate it. But they didn't end up putting that in the film. Ridley Scott has also indicated that the decision to say that David was the creator of the actual xenomorphs, was made late in development, obviously, because they obviously didn't think it through, to have David be that creator. The idea that Wayland yutani created David and then he created the xenomorphs, which makes them, the xenomorphs, Wayland yutanis intellectual property, <laughs> is awesome. And I love that. So I really want theory number one to be the right one, but it just doesn't work logistically. So theory Why? number two, because we haven't, there, there are no engineers left over. They've been wiped out as a species, as far as we know. Theory number two, that David happened to recreate by chance the same circumstances that led to the xenomorph as we know it. This theory makes the most logical sense for the timeline with the information that we have. But it makes me wonder why we're then even watching this prequel series that spins off and tells the story of David creating these xenomorphs if it just ends somewhere and we never see the result of that happening because it never reaches humanity. I'm fine with theory one. I I have no trouble believing that these people who were who were basically cultivating entire planets, it doesn't seem surprising to me that they would have more than one home base. I also said, I also have down here in my notes that I read somewhere that there's extra footage on the Blu-ray of Prometheus that explains that in sort of like the canon understanding, but it wasn't actually in the movie, that Wayland yutani was aware of the SOS signal on LV-426, told David about that because they were headed 
to LV-223, where Prometheus takes place. So we know, based on that explanation, that the derelict crashed on LV-426 before David ever even made it to that system. Meaning that Theory 2 has to be the right answer. Theory 1 can't be the right answer. Because the derelict crash happens before David ever interacts with any engineers or anything. Which is a big fucking bummer. But then it adds the additional question of, he had a working ship that didn't crash, it didn't die. We know he was hovering above the town before he turned it into a necropolis. Why didn't he just then go to LV-426? If he's on his own, he's a rogue robot, why would he never go there? If he's run out of experiment, experimental subjects and he knows that there's something going on in LV-426, why wouldn't he ever act on that when his experiment subjects die up? My point is, this is why you create a series Bible before you get to your fifth and sixth entries into the franchise. And those entries being prequels, you need to know what the plan is and not just go off half-cocked. I agree. And this, these prequels, while very interesting and compelling on their own, just confuse the events of the entire franchise. I, I can see that. Which is why I wish Ridley would have stuck to his guns and made them not quite connected to the Alien franchise. But I he, just wish he that he had just the, taken a little bit more time. Yes. But if he is going to do something weird and different, then make it a different story. Make it a reboot in a different timeline or something like that. A different story that's not connected to Ripley at all. Like, I would have been totally satisfied with that. That kind of is what we get because we know that if his xenomorphs aren't going to become the xenomorphs in Alien then it is kind of just an offshoot that has nothing to do with this. But then the coincidences are too high. It's like what, you know, it's, and they try to force it back into the franchise with Alien Covenant, making it more alien. Ridley saying that, yes, he is the creator of the Xenomorphs as we know them. Like, which is it? There's so much after the fact backpedaling here. It really drives me crazy. Do you have anything else to say about Alien Covenant, Kelsey? I am good. So what do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? Keeping in mind that Prometheus had a 73 at the time of our review. Well, this is definitely going to be lower. 46? 65. Oh, shit. So it's still positive. Alien Covenant delivers another satisfying round of close quarters, deep space terror, even if it doesn't take the saga in any new directions. Metacritic of 65, same thing. And a cinema score of a B, which is fairly positive. Not stellar like Aliens was with an A, but pretty good. Now, Prometheus was a 73 Rotten Tomatoes. You gave it a 76. I gave it a 79. Is 65 overrated or underrated for Alien Covenant? It's probably right on par. You think? Yeah. You're going to give it a 65? Yeah. This movie's fine. I think there are some good performances. Uh, I think that, what's her name, who plays Daniels, does a good job. Yeah. She's a compelling character, I think. Yes. But 
the whole David and Walter thing. I There's compelling stuff there. It wasn't there. for me. There's a lot of interesting questions that this movie asks. Unfortunately, it doesn't have any good answers. And the answers that it does come up with just muddy the waters. And that really, really bothers me. But I do like this movie. I don't like it as much as Prometheus. But I do like it. I think it's in the 70s. I'm going to give it a 72. So I do like it more than you. I don't like it as much as Prometheus. I think it's a little bit more clear as a solo movie. Prometheus had a lot of inherent contradictions that made it just like this weird philosophical fuck pile. This doesn't have as much of that, but it causes more damage to the franchise as a whole, I feel. But just isolated in and of itself, it's still a movie I like. So I'll give it a 72. So that is Alien Covenant. And we are so close to wrapping up the Alien franchise. If we don't include the AVP movies, we got two more left. <laughs> Alien Cubed and Alien Resurrection. <laughs> so I'm, I'm excited for Alien Cubed. There is an alternate cut of that that one of the producers made. He tried to like backpedal and make it more like what Fincher intended. <laughs> but they only had so much to work with. Mm -hmm. So much changed between the original vision and what they actually filmed mm -hmm. that you could only do so much. So I'm really curious what version we're going to watch when we get there. Well, it probably won't be till next year. So Probably not. Well, what are we watching next week, Kelsey? Next week, uh, we are doing another recommendation week. Yep. This comes from Daniel. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Daniel. It's also going to be a double feature. Oh, it's been a long time since we've done a double feature. Yeah, we're going to be watching The Haunting. Yes, we had to get this in now. Yes, The Haunting is already past our 20-year limit, but we said we would fudge it sometimes when it comes to double features. Like early on, it was like in one of our first episodes where we said that. When it comes to double features, we'll stretch our boundaries. Yes, The Haunting. Really excited about that. Why? I've never seen the original, but I can tell you right now, the 99 version is not oh, good. It did not age well, I'm sure. Uh, it wasn't good when it came out. This is the Liam Neeson one, right? Yes. Yeah. This came out the same summer as House on Haunted Hill. Yeah. And I'll always remember that because one of those movies petrified me. The other movie, I was wondering if it was a joke. And if you can't remember. Yeah, no, I, yeah. The House on Haunted Hill scared the fuck out of me. <laughs> so it's definitely the haunting that was a joke. <laughs> well, I'm excited either way. I have never seen the original haunting. I have seen the Liam Neeson one a long time ago. I think I saw it in theaters and that's the only time I saw it. I remember there being like a haunted stairwell. Yep. Not a stairwell, but like a an open staircase that moves on its own or whatever. And do you even remember the rest of the cast? It has Catherine Zeta Jones. Nice. It has uh what's her face who we just saw in Perry Mason, right? Yeah. The, Mother. The, the mom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's the main chick. I can't think of anybody else that's in this movie. Wow. Oh, Owen Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, okay. It's, it's really funny. My immediate reaction was to you saying, wow, I thought you were just surprised that I couldn't think of the person. And then I said, Owen Wilson. And then I connected that your wow was an Owen Wilson. Oh, person. really? Yeah. 
That's so funny. Anyway, that's next week. The Haunting. Excited for that. Even if it's bad. Thank you, Daniel. Yes, thank you. Okay, something you guys need to know. If you recommend us to watch bad movies, we don't, like, hate you or anything like that. We've received that feedback when we've watched from multiple people. So if you gave us that feedback, you're not the only one. People are like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry you didn't like the movie. And it's like, do not worry. We have fun with even movies we do not like. Even if we hate them, at least we still get a good podcast out of them. And we enjoy talking about them. So... (laughs) Do not worry. And we don't automatically assume that just because you recommended it, it's your you're vouching for it as a good movie or anything like that. You just sometimes just want to see how we'll react to a movie. And I get that. Uh, So thank you very much, Daniel. Really appreciate that. I am sorry if you really liked the remake. Oh, I don't think we're going to like it anyway. It'll be a good laugh. I mean, I've seen I've seen that movie Uh a ton of times. I'm not sure why. Maybe because I've just always seen it as, like, a movie that doesn't scare me or anything. So it's just something that you could put on. I don't know. But I've seen it a lot. That is next week. Until then, you can always reach us at our website, podcemetery.com, where you can get a list of every movie we've ever covered in alphabetical order with beautiful poster art. Highly recommend you check that out just because it's a great way to navigate through our backlog if there are episodes you haven't listened to. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. I would also highly recommend that. Because we add a lot of content that we can't do on the podcast because it's visual in nature. Or corrections to things we get wrong but can't take out of the episode. Or additional discussion about things that we didn't elaborate on in the recording. So I would highly recommend you follow us on Twitter at Pod Cemetery. Don't forget to subscribe in your podcatcher of choice. And rate and review. A five-star written review is a huge help. So thank you for those of you that have done that already. Thank you very much. Thank you to the people who have shared us with your friends or enemies or whomever. Getting us exposure is really great, and we appreciate that a great deal as well. But more important than that is listening in the GD first place. We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Eat this. Take my shirt off. Still wearing an undershirt. Don't worry. Mostly. 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 So Ripley does what she has to do. What is that a reference to? She took Mother Nature and she did what she had to do. Sounds like ABBA. It's raining men. Oh, God. It's raining men. Hallelujah, it's raining men. Fucking three hours and three minutes later. (laughs) I'm a big old dum-dum. Yes, he is the captain of the shit ship. You want to say that again? 
and that something's wrong with Walter. Not only because of something we find out in just a moment, but also because it's almost like... Something's wrong with David. Sorry. Like he knows that something's wrong with Walter. Not... Damn it. That's the spirit. They've made a few upgrades since your model or whatever. It is awesome. Do something. Well, fuck you then, little kid. 